Welcome to the Batphone Podcast, where we talk about combat sports, comic books, gaming, pop culture, and anything else my friends want to talk about. Hosted by yours truly, Nick Batman Hughes. All right, picking up the Batphone this week, and I've been waiting for this one. I've been waiting for this one. He's a good friend of mine. His name is Sam Dodge. And when you think of a strength and conditioning professional, Sam is the person that I think of. I mean, you've been involved in a plethora of sports, both competitively and on the side of development as well, whether it's been rugby, whether it's been judo, whether it's been wrestling, grappling, uh, everything at, uh, a na- at least a national scale. Uh, you've medaled in grappling competitions and you've aided even MMA athletes into you know, prosperity in their chosen field. And it's been a very, very impressive thing. You, I asked you to send me through some details on you. I was like, oh, can you send me through a list of experience and accolades? Because I know a little bit about you, but now I know a lot. And even if I go ahead and list them, that'll be the whole podcast. That's, that's how credentialed you actually are. And you're currently the head strength and power coach at the Adelaide Crows, which apparently there's some sort of a football-related outfit that people know about in South Australia. So... I feel very privileged to have you here, man. And I also feel very privileged to have you in as a student at the MATLAB as well. We first came into contact with each other when I was still coaching at Trinity. You chose to come over and further your grappling here. And I'm very thankful for that. And, you know, I'm also very thankful that you let us uh, babysit your big Gav, who's now the uh, the true mascot for the MATLAB. He is the MATLAB, <laughs> even though uh, he might be a golden retriever, but that's all right. Uh, good to have you here, man. How are you oh, feeling today? Yeah, good. Yeah, looking forward to it. Thanks for having me down and... Uh... Yeah, thanks again. It's been it's been a pleasure, like getting to know you guys and train, and uh, yeah, really enjoyed it so far, mate. So thank you yourself. Yeah, uh, man, it must have been a massive journey for you. I mean, picking up and going, you know, from one country to the next, you know, for professional and, and personal uh, ventures. That's not an easy thing to do. I mean, fill me in. How did this all come about? How did we get here? Yeah, so I was um, I I I worked in um, predominantly rugby, like we like said before, and um, I was essentially looking for work. Like I had an opportunity come up in Wales that sort of didn't end up looking exactly like it was it was forecast, and um, essentially like left there and was just applying for work. So there was no sort of preconceived plan of coming to Australia. It was literally applying for work, and the opportunity came up at the Crows, and um, yeah, it was one of those things where it was like. It seemed like a big move at the time, but I've kind of always been of the mindset as well, kind of where I left the, the job beforehand, that like if I'm not happy and I don't feel like something's right, like nothing's permanent, you know? So it was a big move, but it also wasn't at the same time. Like my mindset was like, if, I, if I'm not enjoying it, I'll go back home, you know? Mm. Um, but yeah, it was mid-pandemic, so like there was travel bans on and all sorts of different bits and pieces. And I got the, once you find out all the contracts signed off and stuff, I had about four weeks and before you knew it, you were flying through the air and in hotel isolation <laughs> and a country you'd never been in before so that's it's been, incredible man yeah how, how, i mean how did it go about did you apply for the position did the crows come to you i mean obviously you have a level of notoriety in the world of elite sports and i would say also ball sports and combat sports i mean that's your your wheelhouse yeah, for sure. um, you have your own company which is grips yeah. strength and conditioning or grip strength and conditioning um, who I'm very interested in working with. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 from, from the MATLAB perspective as well, but also from the personal perspective. Like, it, was that kind of something that got you across the line? I mean, did they look into you as well? Obviously, there must have been a process. Yeah, I think, um, like, I, th- I think it was kind of like a, a mixture of being like a good fit for what the club wanted at the time as well. Um, so like AFL is like, it might surprise South Australians, but it's not like widespread gospel like do you know what I mean it's, mm. it's, it's not hugely well known about in the UK and I, I didn't know a huge amount about it 
Um, but my experience, like I've worked for, for Welsh rugby, Bristol Bears, I've worked with England rugby, Welsh judo, different bits and pieces. And, mm. you know, I think that broad skill set is something that they felt could complement the, the quality of the programme. You yeah. know, I think um, your strength and conditioning is generally can be quite universal, provided you understand performance sport and you understand how to get the best out of your athletes. And like the programme I run at the Crows would look different from my grapplers, would look different from rugby, etc. But having that broad field, I think, helped. Um, but no, I wasn't like headhunted or nothing like that. I literally just mm. applied. And um, I think they did do their homework a little bit in terms of, you know, it's a big move to bring someone across from the other side of the world. Yeah, and, that's true. Yeah. You know, you might not be a, a perfect fit and stuff like that. So I think they did their homework that way. But mm. I think the one thing, because I had a few different offers on the table at the time, and um, one of the things that excited me most about it was, like, one, the personal development they give me, like working mm. in a sport that's, you know, completely aliens me. You know, if I went to go work in basketball, I'd understand you score two points or three or like, you know, it's yeah. five people. I, you know, I knew genuinely nothing. And my, my boss um, at the minute, Burjo, he, he did a podcast and like he's, he, he literally knew nothing. Like it wasn't like a little bit, you know? So it was a great personal challenge um, because if you can learn, you know, a high profile sport like that and how to improve athletes in that sport, you could kind of demonstrate the, the strength of your philosophy and the fact yeah. it is universal. Um, and then I was also quite, I quite like the fact that they were open for that as well. Do you know what I mean? Like they were obviously quite forward thinking in terms of like, we do need something different. And you know, the club were looking for a, a bit of a change. And when I joined um, Bristol Bears, we were in a probably similar position. We were um, a kind of constant yo-yo team sort of getting promoted from the premiership to the championship. And, you know, they were really looking to try and go on a journey to establish themselves as a performing, you know, high, high performing premiership team. And, I, that journey was awesome. Like, I love that. I love the fact that like we were, we were my first year at Bristol, we got relegated, which was a great learning experience. And we ended up, by the time I'd left, we won some European competitions and not, not purely myself, like, do you know what I mean? But you were part of that journey. Mm. And it was just good fun. Do you know what I mean? I yeah. enjoy the challenge of going to work every day and having to get better to be good enough, you know? And that kind of, that was kind of a combination of things that excited me about it really. And it ended up being a no-brainer. Like one of the jobs was in Russia, so I'm quite thankful that didn't, uh, that didn't end up. I was, I was envisioning going over and wrestling and just loving that, but I'm quite glad that one didn't come off. But like, yeah, no, it was, um, it's been really good. Yeah, it's been really good. Real good challenge, like personally and professionally. Yeah. And, and Gavin that. gets to chill on the beach. Absolutely, well. yeah. He's living the dream. He doesn't realise how lucky he's got it, man. He's just rocked up and like rent-free, living the dream, beach walks oh every day. Like, yeah. yeah, my wife Jackie is, uh, has a second husband and his name is Gavin. Yeah. I think he might be the first priority as opposed to and it's, unfortunately for Jackie he's probably not her only like fiance like Johnny he's got he's got he's got like, everyone I think he's everyone's second husband he's like, yeah. he does very well for himself he does yeah I'm not surprised at all I'm not surprised he won me over as well I probably would have let him have her yeah. <laughs> for those who can't see us right now which is everyone um, a, no, we don't have subtitles for Sam, and B, Jackie is also in earshot right now and can hear everything that I'm saying. She's giving me yeah, a look. <laughs> I think she's she's less shocked at the fact that I would give her over to Gavin than she is at the fact that Gavin has other wives. Yeah. On the- <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> she thought she was the only one. <laughs> nah, that's awesome. I'll do my best not to diss AFL now because you work with the guys. <laughs> it's, it's interesting, I mean, not knowing so much about the the scene in the community here in Australia there is a little bit of a split it's like not everyone likes football you know what I mean but I think that's because it is actually quite a niche sport in that way it's not the easiest sport to get your head around if you're coming from a from the outsider in rugby it can be pretty straightforward union has more rules however it's still pretty straightforward because it's a head-on game Mm. 
and a lot of the rules are head-on centric. It's not as multi-angled as football, yeah. basketball, and you, everyone knows. Everyone knows these sports are universal. So because of that, they have development in every single country, which makes it a very universal professional yeah. sport. The needs of the athletes are way more well known. So you can sort of, as a fitness professional, slot in as a trainer and be like, all right, well, I understand the needs of the athlete. But with AFL, it's completely different. And grassroots AFL, like amateur stuff, like SANFL or VFL, that all stems from kids kicking the footy yeah. at you know, lunchtime, yeah. basically, or recess in primary school and in, in their schooling years. Like, every kid across the entire country kicks the footy yeah. at lunchtime. Um, but how do you translate that, like, hang a goodness into, <laughs> into an actual professional athlete? And unfortunately, it's been the knock-on AFL for a while. Like, if you, if you uh, directly compare, say, the AFL with the NFL, the professionalism and the streamline, like, the stringent, uh, just... Uh, qualifications that you have to go through to become a professional and I feel like a pro footballer through your elementary years, through your college years, your high school years, college years, like it's massive, it's big mm. business, you yeah. know what I mean? And AFL to a certain extent is big business, but like you just have a look at the type of characters that you get and they're, they're kids, man, they're just big kids, yeah. they're big 18 to 25 year old kids who may or may not have a lot of life skills and the pressure isn't put on them yet um, to become professionals in that way. Later on down the track, when they step into leadership roles, they have a lot of media training. They have a lot more understanding about what is expected of a professional athlete. But there's like, it's never been really perceived as a real like top tier sport where you have to be an, a hyper professional. But okay, yeah. bringing people on who are um, a little bit more sports science minded, that has infiltrated the AFL within the last eight to 10 years. Before that, it was just like Barry Robbins smashing dudes, you know, yeah. in the back of the head. Like, <laughs> but you know, that's what it was. Like, so I think another hard one though is like kids like myself who grew up watching the sport. It's changed so much I as well. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So many different rules. They're one yeah. of the only sports that bring in like transplant rules from different sports and yeah. implement them into their own sport, like outright, yeah. without any modifications. Yeah. Yeah. So it's hard. And you know, those kids who have been growing up playing, when they get to professional leagues, it might not be or it might not resemble the same game that they grew up playing. So yeah, for sure. It's probably difficult all around to sort of streamline. Hey, what do these kids actually need to be focusing on? in order to become better athletes. Yeah, I think it's like, it's one of those things as well, as you mentioned rugby, like I think I think, like a lot of these sports are relatively new in themselves, like do you know what I mean? And, and there is scope for like lots of interpretation of rules and stuff and it does it does change things. And even rugby union and time I've worked in it is a different game now versus what it was 10 years ago. Mm. You know, and it's different. I think it's one of those things where like, you, you'll see a team will go for a period of success and then that suddenly becomes the, the way to do it. And mm. then, you know, it's kind of like, uh, like to liken it to grappling it's like if you put all your eggs in one basket you've got limitations elsewhere right and it's kind of normally big extremes that make a big difference and I think probably what the the aim of your physical performance stuff is to do is to try and broaden like your ability to, to complement all of those areas so you're not just a, a strength strength guy and you know think about grappling like strength guy in a gas tank mm. well you outwork them you know different rule sets don't suit them etc things like that and likewise you're hugely technical guys without the stream you look at the ADCC like the guys are like it's, it, they are starting to become strong in both elements of the camp of that skill and physicality. And I think it's um, just as sports grow and professionalize and build, they have essentially become a little bit more homogenic in some of the qualities that you get 
out of the athletes. I think the, the thing with the, um, the youth athlete side of things in, in footy that's different to, to rugby is like, like we have academy systems mm. because of the draft. Like, so where the draft system in the States is, you know, you've got schools, colleges, into, into professional NFL mm. stuff, say for instance, if you're looking at football as an example. But in, in rugby, you've got a lot of these guys are through academy systems, so you, you actually do get that upskilling of that. They make their mistakes when they're 15, 16, mm. you steer them towards it. The numbers game in NFL probably means you can't afford to have a limitation in any area because yeah. there's so many people. But where the AFL draft system takes place, you know, we can't put five years and a million dollars of resource into a kid because. You know, we might lose them due to the draft. Yeah, but yeah. the numbers are probably still there. That like, I, I think your draftees, and they'll probably admit it. You know, I mean, when they come into a new program, this is only my first year in it. But like, mm. you know, we have some really talented, good young fellas in our group at the minute in our draftees. But it was a shock to them, no matter how how good they were in the different areas. It was still like a shock to them because they've gone from school to professionalism mm. like that. And that's probably a challenge in, in the footy side of things. Is these boys come in and they're expected to perform immediately that's big pressure. but they're also learning they're also they've moved into state probably for the first time you know mm. there's so many different like but that's also what kind of makes it quite fun and enjoyable as well mm. is seeing fellas come from from that and be thrust into those situations and like the support networks around them are really good you've got to hope that they're able to channel all of that and, and, and get the best out of themselves as they go and it's difficult man for, not the easiest you know, thing yeah, in the world nah, to do especially nah, not at that age nah. I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have done a good job of it at that age. Like, yeah. do you know what I mean? It's like, yeah, so it's a huge challenge. Yeah, yeah. a huge challenge for them. An interesting thing, I've, I've had a chat to a couple of my friends who've um, been in the States for quite a while with the collegiate system and the high school and collegiate system that is a little bit unbeknownst to the general public is they can't make any money. I think a lot of people know that. Like if there's a video game, their likeness can be used. Like if they're a high school or a collegiate student, they are an amateur student. Yeah. Their likeness can be used for profit and gain, but they're not allowed to see any of that profit and gain. Mm. So what happens is behind the scenes, different businesses, maybe from their local area or from the wider area, they'll see like a highly talented high school athlete or a collegiate athlete. And they'll go, right, well, we're going to sponsor you under the table. Mm. And we're going to give you X amount of money over the next, you know, four to five years when you're not meant to be making that amount of money. And we're yeah. going to subsidize essentially your existence for this amount of time. But you are now beholden to us. Yeah. So if you don't do X, Y, and Z, and sometimes put X, Y, and Z mm. into your body then we're not going to invest in you. Mm. Say goodbye to your like professional career. Mm. You, you might make it as a collegiate athlete. So it's, it is a big business, and sometimes there's more to it than meets the eye, and the pressure that is heaped on for what is really uh, you know, a developing athlete, a youth athlete, that's huge. That's, mm. that's almost impossible. But I think in this country, maybe the Olympics is still held in a higher regard than an independent professional sporting scene. Like, so judo at the Olympics is still placed higher than, say, an ADCC athlete. Mm, yeah. You know, people remember, people, you know, the mainstream media will popularize a uh, swimming gold medal much, much more highly over, like, an ADCC world champion. <laughs> I, think, I think it's one of those things as well as, like, like it's obviously growing exponentially and it's becoming a really good product now and like you know what i mean it's like it's gone from guys rolling around in like random little garages and stuff like that mm. you know it's, it's a, you know it's a, it's a money maker you saw the size of the adcc like mm. you know comparatively to what it's been previously and stuff like that but like i think 
like look it's a it's a it's a taboo like you, you talk about like the nfl as well and things like that like i think the when you're talking about like the doping bits and pieces and stuff like that like i think until sports like that can fully legitimize themselves by mm. you know having stringent drug tests and having like you know like the, the grappling isn't as professionally managed as mm. professional sports you know like the, the amount of um anti-doping testing that goes on yeah. in rugby and football and like it's 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 probably people don't believe it but it's staggering do you know what I mean like, it does no, it's so difficult like it does people happen. don't cheat the system yeah. like do you know what I mean and like the actual until I think they do that it's obviously gonna be a big red flag I, I personally think like do you know what I mean because there's always that thing of like if you know a lot of the top guys are cheating it's a, it's a hard thing and it's it's quite like apparent isn't it like do you know what I mean it happens and like definitely know. the IBJJF tried to implement some strategies to make jiu-jitsu more mainstream appealing or at least you know they sort of ran a campaign five to six maybe a maybe longer than that ago mm-hmm. I mean, I'm older than I think to try and get jiu-jitsu into the Olympics basically yeah. and it, it's harder than they think it is they have to they have to have an international governing body that is not yep. for profit. Yep. And they don't have that. And they never will have that. Yep. IBJJF isn't going to hand over the reins yep. of an international governing body to a not for profit company that is the basically the flagship and sole provider to get people into the Olympics. And you also have to prove that up to seven nations can consistently win medals or viably win mm. medals or gold medals in the chosen field. Um, to make it a leveled sport. Also within that, you know, think of the rules of judo and the rules of wrestling, how heavily they have been modified over the years. Judo took out leg grabs yeah. exclusively. Yeah. Wrestling, you know, the difference between NCAA collegiate wrestling or even base folk style wrestling to Olympic freestyle wrestling and Olympic Gre- yeah. Greco-Roman, the time that you're allowed to spend on the ground is drastically different. There's no ride control emphasis. There's no um, connected takedown to control emphasis. It's all very sort of done to be fan-friendly. So if Jiu-Jitsu did make it into the Olympics, A, it would have to be incredibly uh, stringently tested, which would cut off, you know, yeah. like 50 to chunk. 60% yeah. of your current medalists. Yeah. Uh, possibly even more. I might be being generous, and it would the rule set would be so drastically altered. I actually talked about this on a podcast recently, and they were sort of like, "Really, you reckon that would happen?" One hundred percent. It would be limited time on the ground, yeah, and less than you'd imagine. Well, you like thirty to thirty seconds to a minute yeah. of action time on the ground. They'd see full guard, and they'd be like, "Nah." You're out of there. It's one of those things where, like, cause you look at, like, you look at, like, the Olymp, like, in my eyes, like, the Olympic model is like you, you're isolating different elements of human performance, and you're looking at who's the best at, right? So who's the strongest weightlifter? Like, mm. you know, who's the best at putting someone on the ground? Probably judo. You know, mm. who's the best at controlling someone on the ground? Mm. Like wrestling and like boxing, you got striking. You know, taekwondo. We've taken out all the the, the punching from taekwondo. Mm. It's like ninety nine percent kick scores or whatever. Like, who can kick the best? You know, it's kind of yeah. like those little elements of it. And jits is one of those things where it's like, it like which component of that in isolation mm. does it kind of box does it tick? Because you know it's like it's a combination of all, all of them, really, isn't it? Like, do you know what I mean? And then you know you could look at MMA as being the, the ultimate summary of all of those. But mm. I think as well the nature of it is like I've coached, I like, say, I coached like people who've competed at the Olympics at Commonwealth Games and stuff like that, and they'd make more cash out of doing ADCC and super yeah. fights than they would, you know what I mean? So it's actually, do you get the best of the guys within those, like, I guess you look at like maybe soccer, right? You don't, it's not England versus America versus at the Olympics. They, they've kind of capped it at age groups and you're allowed certain elements of players to come in mm. above it. But I, I think like, that's where you're like, you're, 
your rule set becomes so important, doesn't it? And the IBJJF, like, one makes sense from a point scoring and maybe mm. like a formality point of view. Then you've got gi no gi, you know, like, which mm. it, it just becomes so broad, doesn't it? And it's really interesting because it, it should, like, it's one of those sports where, like, I think it has all those qualities to be that, that tier of sport, mm. but it's kind of grown out of its own infancy and, like, mm. it's, like you say, it's like legitimizing it does change the scape of the the landscape it, it does and it will you know we're, we're sitting in the mat lab right now and we're sitting in front of a table that has the rule sets of different yeah. <laughs> and yeah. so like we have the IBJJF rule set handbook in front of us we have the ADCC rule set which is like six pages there's a grappling industries printout sheet which is one page of basically what you can and can't do the IBJJF rule set is 64 pages long yeah, so comparatively it's pretty intense and it's come about because of some really esoteric and strange preferences in what you can and can't do or what you should and shouldn't do. And who's making those judgment calls, right? It's people who are ah, nowadays somewhat detached from the art and the evolution of the art. You put that in the hands of the IOC and it's going to be even further detached yeah. and less realistic as to what we're trying to achieve in jiu-jitsu. I think, interestingly enough, the ADCC rule set is the closest to what you could translate mm. immediately yeah. into an Olympic rule set. They might have to cut the matches down, but the constant call for action, that's yeah. you look at any combat sport in the Olympics and that's what yeah. you're seeing. You're seeing passivity calls and stall calls yeah. nonstop. You get that in wrestling like I. It's like yeah. you have to go. Man, if you put your yeah. head on the chest in yeah. wrestling for too long, it's passive. You're yeah. getting called. If you take a singular grip, if you take a two-on-one grip for too long, yeah. it's passive. If you back away from the action, if you, someone shoots at you and you sprawl yeah. and you just hold the sprawl for too long, you're getting called for passive. It's just different. It's, 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 they're just they're, they're unique sports in themselves, right? Yeah. It's just it's just isolated portions of submission grappling that you see in various different forms, mm. and you know, it's like, yeah, it's like the, the rule set determines how you go about it. Yeah. It's like it's like chess, but speed chess or normal chess, isn't it? You can you can think as long as you want, or you've got to make quick decisions, mm. isn't it? And it's just they're different always... stylistically, isn't it? You know. <sighs> They're always going to have to get over the, the hill of having an international not-for-profit federation yeah. that is a regulatory body. I mean, that's why Olympic sports are government-subsidized mm, in yeah, this yeah, country. Absolutely, yeah, because, be, I, yeah. Because you can't make money, quote-unquote, yeah. from them. Uh, therefore, they have to be subsidized. And mm. you get, you know, if I want to open up a judo gym, government will help me out. Yeah. want to open up a grappling gym, they don't know what grappling is. Yeah. Yeah, well, we know what this judo yeah. thing is because it's in the Olympics, but what is it that you guys do? Mm. And then MMA, it's completely different. They just think it's a blood yeah. sport. And they, <laughs> the more blood, it's like that's how you determine the winner is like milliliters well, of the, blood spill. The interesting one, so one of my boys competed at the IMMAF stuff in, um, yeah. in Europe yeah. just gone, and that's probably the closest I've seen MMA be legitimized into a, a type of, you know, a, a yes. formal sport like that. Yes. It's like I'd amateur boxing, correct. isn't it? You know, you've, yeah. got, you've got head guards, you've got shit, you know, and it's... They compete multiple days, yeah. you know? Yeah, and that IWMAF, Alan Philpot was really pushing that a little while ago. Uh, Ian Levi and, and Mason were approached about being part of the Australian team. Mm. I think it could and should be bigger mm. than it is because, as I say, it is a really legit amateur format. Yeah. And, you know, we get, we get kids and, and athletes right now who have three fights in three years, mm. and every time they fight, it's a fucking massive event for their life they are mm -hmm. first fight amateurs 
and they and that's what they think fighting is, right? Yeah. You condense the actual content of those fights, those three fights that they had over three years, and you put it in one tournament. Yeah. They're going to get yeah. three years worth of experience at, um, with less pressure. Yeah, wrestling the same. Like guys will wrestle fifty times a year. Like do you know what I mean, like, like like you know, it's like, and that changes your mindset towards mm. competition, right? Yeah. Like when I first started, I was like every combo shit myself and it was a big thing if you're having to do that week in week out that's one great thing about team sports mm. play every week do you know what I mean so you play a season you play 25 games you play yeah. for 5 years you, play, you know you're over 100 games and it's like that like frequency of competition actually then gets away with a stigma of you know because it is hard like, you know you like people hate losing it becomes such so important and actually ruins the, the fun of what yeah. should be a sport yeah. where you're training and competing and up and down and like and also yeah. when you have trial and error or if you have error you can better pinpoint what that error was because mm. if you have like a massive event and it doesn't go well you'll always sort of be grasping at straws as to what went wrong what went wrong what could we have done better mm. have you not experienced a bad day before yeah you know so i know this with swimming as well like you get <clears throat> you train twice a day every day you compete every weekend mm. Um, against all the people, same people you're competing against. Every club holds a competition, so you yeah. just go to their pool and swim. Same thing, right? And you get a kid who wins for a whole year, goes undefeated a whole year. Or at the end, you know, they have the biggest points tally. And then on one week, it didn't go well. Why didn't it go well? And another week, it goes well. Next week, it doesn't go so well. You actually get to have dips in performance and begin to understand why you're having dips in, in performance. Maybe you didn't sleep well, maybe your nutrition was shit. Maybe you're having a bad day, like yeah. what is a bad day? Yeah. But it's not so much pressure on that bad day because you know you're gonna come back next week and do it again. You're allowed to fail in a safer space. 100%, yeah, and like it's even like, like there's no um, like replacement for the competition, for the event, for like, you know, you know what I mean, and it's like, you can spar hard and comp classes. You can, but you've always got that avenue of, you know, you can step out. You, you, you know what I mean? It's like, and I think the more, like, uh, stuff we look at within, like, like our SC philosophy stuff is like, the more time you spend training at event level of competition, the better you get at the event, and mm. you can't replicate a lot of those things. Like, even like you can come real close. Yeah, but like, like it's different. Everyone knows yeah. that you could do ten comp classes, you go compete on the weekend, and it's it's a different feeling. It's mm. a different like, you know, and like even where we replicate it really well here in some of those rounds we do and like you know the internal comp stuff and all those bits yeah. and pieces it is still different like yeah. you know and that yeah I think that MMA thing is exactly that like do you know what I mean it's like like people can go like say compete three times across a year but like that INMAF type mm. like sort of situation I think that'd be a great one for any any guys under 16 and up yeah. like you have like inter club type things and stuff like that you've got, you've got head guys you're not taking damage you're not taking like and we know it's not exactly the same but you don't want your your guys be taking like you know elbows to the face and things like that super early doors and it actually builds up your your um database and your experience of lots of multiple different very competition simulated experiences that ultimately will make you a better competitor like you know and it's almost like an old school philosophy that got lost a little bit <clears throat> i've heard both sides of this camp but they just sort of miss like they misconnect or miscommunicate mm -hmm. on each other one one side is like oh you know we we want to prepare athletes for you know, we want to simulate the elite level as soon as we possibly can so if you know if we get kids in fight camps early you know mm. what i mean give them six to eight week fight camps and replicate you know simulate what they're going to be needing to do and i've followed that pathway myself i went down that track certainly for even 
even first fight amateurs yeah. who are going through fight camps. And the other side of that is if you are an amateur athlete, an amateur fighter, you want to get in as much experience as yep. you possibly can. Yep. So forego the idea of fight camps, be as consistently competing as you can and as consistently trained as you possibly can. So you give yourself maximum time for upskilling in the academy, maximum time for competition experience and upskilling in a competitive setting. And then later down the track when it's necessary, when your opponents are good enough to make it viable to train specifically for one opponent, then you train for them. When you first start, you train for you. You make yeah. yourself as best as you can possibly be. Eventually, with the skill set that you amass, you start training for them yeah. to be as sharp as possible to take on the skills that they have amassed. Like the thing you say as well is like, like because I've looked at it, I've worked in different teams in the same sport and, and things like that, and like a training week looks different, mm. like in a club forty minutes down the road, and it does, you know, like so. You say I'll get used to fight camps. Your fight camp will probably look completely different in mm. a year's time. So you're not actually rehearsing like a, a, a set thing you're probably going to go and do in the future anyway. Mm. And I, 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 I have a few of my guys at the minute, they're, they're amateur fellas looking to go on to be pro. And we, we, the other thing we try and look to do is like when you go pro and when your record's important and when it counts and it matters, like you say, you want to spend as much of your time working on competition-like events and you know really training the... The, 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 say MMA for example right you're, you're, you're MMA training you're sparring you're training for MMA what we're doing with those guys at the minute is we're working really hard on our more general qualities so our, our jiu-jitsu our wrestling our, our boxing you know tie whatever it looks like and your physical preparation because at the minute the broader of a skill set you get the better physically developed you are the kind of more um, high level skill sets you have to lean on when we actually start melding all that together to look like MMA mm that broader base you don't get time to do that when you're pro you, you yeah. don't like you know because you say it's one event it's one person and it's really hard to broaden that skill set when you're professional and it becomes super important mm. especially physically do you know what i mean so what we're doing my guys there at the minute now is we're trying to broaden their base as much as possible put some work into them physically like one of my boys had a tie fight he wants to be an mma fighter right but he's fighting tight at the minute because he wants to learn to compete etc yeah. things like that we trained up until a few days beforehand because we, we spoke about what his long-term plans are and I was like yeah look we can taper you for eight weeks now and get you on something like that and like you'll perform really well now but every time you do that you will take away from your ability to one use those tapering sessions in the future but also it's time spent not developing while you can you know and like as much as it will suck at the time if you lose that tie fight now but when you turn into a pro MMA fight you're an absolute monster because yeah. of the work you put in and it's understanding that, I think, and it's like, he, I'm really lucky, LS, one of my boys, he's very, very mature and he sees the bigger picture and understands where he is now at the minute. And then back to that draft example, right, in the, NFL, in the AFL, it's like, he's at a point where he's essentially a pre-draft. So let's like maximize his ability mm. to go in and then when he is expected to perform, he can do it. Yeah. Because you can't catch up and people try to catch up. That's the biggest thing I've noticed, particularly in MMA and I think grappling's probably a little bit different because it's just, it's so regular, it's a bit more regular and it's a bit more sort of free flowing, but you know, that certainly that problem or anything is guys will then later on try and upskill themselves physically and that's hard, like, you know, yeah. to, to get bigger, to get stronger, to, you, you have to take something away from yourself for a bit mm. and you can't afford to do that a huge amount if you don't know when you're fighting next, you've got to take yeah. your first opportunity, you know. And you've got to be ready for those opportunities and then you sort of come to the understanding of well, what constitutes ready. I'm not mm. always going to have a four to eight week fight camp 
in the UFC yeah, either. Yeah. They're going to call me up on very short notice. Mm. They're generally not bringing you in to win. I think the other downfall of implementing camps too early in a, an athlete's career is you teach them to peak and valley. So you yeah. teach them to mentally and emotionally peak up to this one massive event and the inevitable valley that occurs when they drop down from that event, win, lose or draw, you sort of teach them that that's what you do, that that's what this life is about. That's what you're going to have to endure if you want to partake in this. And it's not necessarily so. Like you mm -hmm. really can, I think it was training, funnily enough, training at a strength and conditioning facility for some of my MMA fights where they had us peaking uh, and tapering in a shorter format because before that I was just like this is the biggest thing ever I'm going to fight this is going to be hard and I'm going to have to take a week off mm -hmm. before my fight because I'm just going to be so maxed out from camp and shit like that I just thought that was normal but what they were able to reveal to me is actually very detrimental to think that way mm -hmm. so we were peaking <coughs> physically three days out I was doing my heaviest lift, my heart, my hardest training sessions, my fastest sprint three days out from the actual fight, from the actual day of competition. And I thought that, that was just ridiculous and there was no way I'd be able to recover. And they're like, no, you're not, you're not teaching your body that you're peaking for an event by tapering for a week. You're, yeah. you're telling yourself that you're slowing down. But yeah, I think, sorry to jump in there. I think because that's one of the things that the, the feedback I've had from the footy boys this year is like, we've lifted a lot more consistently mm. over the course of the year, probably a bit more frequently, a little bit heavier in the course of mm. the season. But like that adaptate, adapting to that means you tolerate it super well. And there's loads of things that come with that. You hold your lean mass, you know, your, mm. your, your injury prevention is generally a bit better when you're, when you're lifting well, when you're strong as you're going in. Yep. And, um, you know, you, you look at, um, that ability to sustain, um, training, volume, etc. The only other thing that comes from that is, say for my boys, if, if I treated every weekend like a huge drop-off, mm. you, you don't, and you, you've always got that level of soreness, you've always got that level yeah. of doms as soon as you. So I'm, I'm a real believer, like the, in a majority of sports, outside of sports that are pure measures of strength and power, right? So like discus, you know, shot put, javelin, etc. things like that. Most of the time, your strength work is general. It's completely general. You know, like you, you're, it's something that like underpins some of the qualities of your your performance, but it's not actually something that necessarily dictates it. So with that in mind, like yeah, you you, you can't you will modify and it, it, you will still taper. Like say in, with, with like you can't see him, but quotation marks on <laughs> yeah. the actual like you know you will still taper, but your ability to sustain your training over the course of those camps yeah. and stuff, it, it, it adds longevity to one, even in terms of how you pitch about after it. Mm. Like you say, you don't know when you're fighting next, for instance, you yeah. know, it's like, you could win your match and then all of a sudden it's like, oh, opportunity's here, go. Mm. And it's like, if you've spent six weeks, four weeks, really dialing back, it's hard to go again, yeah. you know what I mean? So yeah. I, I think there's a real like benefit to being generally well prepared from a strength power yeah. point of view, conditioning point of view all year round. Yeah. And it takes smart programming. And it's not something you, you can get it wrong. That's the other thing you, you, you can go wrong with that as well. So I think that's where the experience, like I say, like one of the things I feel like I can bring to grappling athletes and, and wrestlers, MMA fighters and stuff from my background in performance sport is everything that I've been geared around is performing regularly week in, week out. Like, you know, mm. judo wasn't about the Commonwealth. It was about qualification comps all the way through. Yeah, you know, guys were competing yeah. regularly and you know, we were building something three years down the line mm. that meant that those competitions weren't necessarily just about the, the here and now. Yeah. You know, rugby, you play every week. 
you've still got to sustain a level of mass. You've still got to find ways to get that training done sensibly. And the other thing as well is the the one thing that kind of grips me a little bit. So I'm probably going off on a tangent. No, like, please do. It, this like, is what yeah, podcasts are for. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I've got like six tangents loaded in my mind that I'm just going to accuse you with. <laughs> just steer me back in if I go. But like, you know, like quite often you see strength coaches trying to replicate the stuff that should be happening on the mat. Like, yeah, almost you know, too repetitive in a oh, way. Yeah. And like, you know, I know exactly what you're talking about. Like, grapplers will spend what 12, 14 hours, you know, high level regular competitors mm. on the mat. So why the one gym session, the two two gym sessions you probably squeeze in a week around everything being sore, being mm. injured, you know, it's a tough sport, isn't it? Why would you try and do a half-assed version of repeating what you do on the mat in the gym? Mm. Like let the gym be what it needs to be, mm. developing your ability to produce force, you know, increasing your um, lean mass, you know, improving your general aerobic stuff so you can go and do the more specific bits on the mat. And I think that comes from a lot of coaches nowadays have to really try and sell themselves and make themselves look different to try yeah. and be like, oh, look at me, this is really specific BJJ strength. You know, we'll do, we'll do rows and a gi and we'll like, you know, it's like, like that's not what performance sport looks like. Mm. Performance sport is guys practicing their craft 80% of the time and the strength work supporting that and allowing them to do that mm. and, and encouraging their, their bodies to tolerate the workload that comes from developing your craft. Yeah. And normally, you'll see these guys doing like loads of funky different exercises and stuff and guys get better at it because they just learn the exercise. It's not, not getting them better at, you know, mm. if you take... It's not quantifiable. Nah, yeah. you, take, you take that, all those guys off the ADCC and try and get them to do a bench press on one leg on a boat, you know, for ultimately, like, they'd struggle at first. It's a weird movement that no one ever does, you know, it's not like... Yeah, I mean, you know. and they're gonna be like, oh, I, I got better at this. Like you did adapt, yeah. but did that adaption equate performance? Yeah. Progress. Now, it's very interesting what you're saying. I'll try and sort of, um, I think you're quite correct in many ways. I'll go back to what I was saying about peaking earlier to competition, and then you touched on it immediately thereafter. It's like, what happens after competition? Mm. I didn't view it as such a massive event, so I didn't value so much afterwards, but I was much more inclined to continue to continue my training because I actually saw the benefit in it. It wasn't like I scratched and clawed through fight camp and made it to the mm. end. I actually made significant increases in my ability in a quantifiable as a person, way. Personally, as, a, as yeah. an athlete, you know. Yeah. Like, yeah. And mentally it makes you go, all right, this is a very different idea. Hopefully I can sort of parlay this into something that is more unique or specific to me. Yeah. And you will eventually, because you'll learn your body, you'll learn your limits, and, and you will also learn what you actually need. Things like your weight class and your style will also potentially dictate the type of strength and conditioning needs that you have. And it's a very interesting. Lots of different schools of thought. Now, I'll use Gordon Ryan as an example. Gordon Ryan does not go into the gym for, for strength and conditioning work to work on his weaknesses. He has many. All right? He is not fast. Mm -hmm. He is not mobile or uh, dexterous in that way. He's not flexible. Um, but he's incredibly strong. Mm. His, his isometric, his concentric squeeze and his strength and, his, and some would say like his ability to reduce breakdown and in, in eccentric load as well when he's sort of being pulled against. Yeah, he doesn't yield. Like, he yeah, does yeah, not yeah, yield whatsoever yeah. and he has excellent intercostal balancing so his core strength mm -hmm. is just phenomenal. This is all he works on. Yeah. He, he's doing like 
base level general strength work. Yep. People are pulling their hair out when they're watching him doing bicep curls and mm -hmm. chest press mm -hmm. and core holds. And they're like, what the fuck is he doing? Shouldn't yeah. he be doing like functional band work and ball throws and working on his like mobility and his, and his like, speed? And it's like, no, yeah. no. Because you, you get ample opportunity. If you're a conscientious trainer and your, your camp and your program is designed around exposing you to those situations, like you'll get that within training, right? Yeah. And it's like you say, all he'll be doing, not like, you know, not speaking for him, and so I'm sure I'm paraphrasing, but is just developing those general qualities that underpin those yeah. bigger movements. And I remember I spoke to um, Duncan French, who was obviously like the head of the UFC Performance Institute. So when I, when my first ever interview was with Duncan for Team GB Taekwondo, didn't get the job, we kind of kept in touch and stuff like that. But like the way they look at it around a lot of their guys is like, because I asked them about that, I was like, look, you've got like, like how do you identify KPIs in, in, in combat sport and UFC, right? How, because, you know, however many weight categories, how, like male, female, you know, stylistic like there's no real formula you can hang your hat on and he said they pretty much look at they in in fight camp you maximize your strengths like because because you're not you're not going into a fight hoping that it goes all over the place mm. you've got a particular strategy you're trying to impart right and you know but in out of campaign that's when they might work on those more general qualities and you know most of that ends up being technical right? mm. because you know as, as much, like, when, when all things are equal skill-wise, strength and power and condition will make a difference. When all things are equal, technique will do. So I, I still think, I mean, you have it in, like, everyone's been to a, a grappling gym where you turn up, and we had a guy called Dan Gandhi at um, Craig's Place in Wales where I trained. And, like, so uh, the example I'll give, right, so Sam, uh, one of the Bristol boys came down for a grappling session. Sam Jeffries plays for England, or has played for England now, um, or was in the squad, sorry, was in the squad, I don't know if he played, but he was... Um, Six foot nine, 110 kilo, like Clark Kent looking fella, incredibly intense, had nothing going for him, right? Like really loved confidence. He was great, bro, right? But, like, <laughs> yeah, nothing going for him. Yeah, nothing going for him. Like, you know, intelligent, articulate, like, yeah, he's a, you know, and like I brought him down and um, I was like, oh, like watch out for Gandhi because Gandhi's like must be 70 kilo dripping wet, locked up like drinking Coke, like, you know, looks looks like a, your archetypal accountant, you know what I mean? Really nice fella as well. Really like, you know, he's not like, one of these guys snarling around the gym. Yeah, yeah. Gandhi fucking crushes everyone. Mm -hmm. Like he's just so good. He's just so good, and he's like really strong in those specific bits. So I remember I was looking over, and I said, and he's I, I pointed him out to his eyes. Just be careful, like, because he'll he'll tune you up, like, do you know what I mean? And Jeff is an intelligent fellow enough to know, you know, being humble, like early doors, because you're a big man, like, and stuff like that. And we were drilling, rolling. I look over and I suddenly see Jeffers, and he's in like a half Nelson face down the floor, like, <laughs> like he catches my eye, and he's like smiling, like thumbs oh, up to me, and it's like, yeah, you know, and it's like, but like. Like, ultimately, like, I don't think, like, athleticism and physicality will complement your ability to be good in the mats. But we all know guys who are just so fucking good at the, the sports that, like, oh. you know, but they develop that specific yeah. strength through years of training, you know? And even as you said, you know, a base athletic development period in your life will aid you in any sport that you can 100%, take yeah. Now, grappling is behind. So, MMA actually is a little in front because it draws upon or draws from sports that have a strong strength and conditioning yeah. background, yeah. right? Like it draws from wrestling, yeah. it draws from boxing, yeah. you know, the science that has gone into improving the conditioning aspects of those sports has been, you know, well fleshed out, yeah. well uh, evolved throughout the years. Um, but grappling doesn't have those influences. So, you know, a professional sport like MMA, 
you need those influences. It's prize fighting. You want to get a true edge, you know, a true athletic edge, a physical edge, a mental edge. We're dissecting it down to the T. You know, the, the big mental edge is consistency. So a lot of what they do is about what is a training, you know, a periodized training program that I can be the most consistent in, that I can make, you know, even numerical gains upon, and I can still hit my obligations with my technical training sessions in which I'm still making technical progress, and then, you know, maybe some simulation sessions like sparring and this mm -hmm. type of thing where they're putting things together well, and they have to be able to assimilate that mentally as well, where they believe that it's all working for them 100%. and nothing is working against them. No part of their week is unnecessary or working against them. That's one of the harder things to do. That's one of the things I've only just got my head around. Like with, yeah. with grappling, it's so volume centric. Yeah. And traditionally, the people that have entered into, say, jiu-jitsu or grappling are coming into it potentially without ever doing any other sport, yeah. especially not a sport that involves combat or contact posture posture like you know like, like anything so like, they yeah. just haven't yeah. gone through that washing machine yet they've never had to learn about their physiology so because of that and because that's traditionally where it's come from it's everyday rolling every day we're doing essentially the same thing mm -hmm. we learn some techniques out of necessity and it is very puzzle piece learning you know this is the traditional archetype yeah obviously at MATLAB and a lot of gyms now we're sort of really challenging those conventions mm -hmm. uh, but grappling is still behind when it comes to strength and conditioning mm -hmm. yep. so one of the big reasons a is because it's so volume centric and b because there is a lot of like niche marketing and branding that goes yeah. into targeting jiu-jitsu athletes because their knowledge level is so low yeah about what conditioning actually can do for them but when you see athletes at a regional level who do have comprehensive conditioning behind them. Mm. It makes such a massive difference. Like Nora, for example, Nora yeah, yeah, sure. yeah. she is sponsored by a strength and conditioning facility yeah. that she, you know, she's not doing things that aren't incredibly outside of the realm no. of general strength and yeah. fitness, but she's incredibly generally strong and fit. Therefore, when she translates that into what she does on the mats, it's immediately useful. Yeah. It's not overkill by repetition. We're already doing that. 100%. We're already yeah. overkilling yeah. our repetition and we have to actively take steps to not do that in our training week yeah. with our schedule. You know, on Mondays we have comp simulation and drills. Tuesdays, it's technique work. Mm. Even though it gets pretty hard on a Tuesday yeah. Yeah, night, sure. it's yeah. still technique work. Wednesday's technique work. Thursday's technique yeah. work. Then we simulation again, but it's all in different areas. We try to make it as cohesive as possible, but as unique as possible at the same time. We give higher intensity and lower intensity 100%. days purposefully so that you could actually fit in conditioning elements around that week yeah. now depending on who you are you might have different times that you have to work different times that you have to recover different stresses on your life at different parts of the week so you yeah. might need to as you say very strategically plot your conditioning but as long as it's working for you and it's not just another part of your repetition bias uh, which is just rampant yeah it's absolutely yeah. rampant in grappling well like the so the reason i got into like providing the SNC for grappling athletes. So as I was working at the Bears, I was training down at Craig's. And like, I, I, I never normally like massively put out what I do for work, right? Because it's like, kind of, not just because I don't really think, assume everyone should give a fuck about it. <laughs> do you know what I mean? It's like, it's no different than anyone's like coming in and talking about their day, like, do you know what I mean? But we sort of got talking about it. And like, you say that like my, 
I, I started grappling quite late, you know, it was like, I was probably like 29 when I started like my first sessions and stuff. And, um, but like, I'm fit, I'm physical, like, you know, and I, I had that, like, you know, guys like, fuck, like you're, you're strong in there mm. and stuff like that. It's like, oh, what, what sort of training do you? And I thought, oh, well, like I'm a strength coach. And like, I started just like for the boys there, like, oh, do you want a program? Like, can you give me a program? I was like, yeah, like sound, like, do you know what I mean? And it kind of dawned on me is like, use a rugby union example. Say you play semi-pro rugby back in the UK. Like you, my local club, say for Brixham back in Devon. So you you probably have an SSC coach there who's had some level of experience from a local professional club who have some national governing body experience and it kind of waters down and you get a generally decent level of basic strength and conditioning support, right? Whereas like those guys in Craze Gym who like were competing like at very, very high levels who hadn't had any guidance whatsoever. And you go back to the point of like the marketing and the, you know, you get the most juiced up like out there black belt who's like that and it's like just because you're a black belt like it makes you a, a, a black belt as an SSC coach and I always use the example of like like you wouldn't pay a white belt for a seminar right mm. like you wouldn't expect someone to come in who's coached one year and go right here's a, you know it's a, a grapple for one year and it's just like that like you know learning how to provide SNC to, to develop guys physically like I've been doing it 15 years now and I still I probably I'd be purple brown belt level I expect myself to go further and, and reach those yeah. like levels of it you know and it's like but on the other side, it's like credentials can just be your physique or your, your level of competition. It's like, you know, I've coached pro rugby players for 10 years, put them in a pitch, I'll be dog shit. Do you know what I mean? It's like, just because I've been involved in that doesn't mean I truly understand the, the nuances of it. And I think that's really important to remember. And um, well, you want your conditioning coach to be the best conditioning coach that you can possibly get. Yeah. You don't want them to be the best rugby player. But the other thing then, then, then that's really important, right? Because that's something that like, I think one of the best things that's developed my practice in the last three or four years was competing in a competitive mm. sport again. And, you know, I went from my training changed to suit and complement my grappling. Mm. And like, even like, you know, like um, when I was training for the wrestling, like, um, like I got called into the Commonwealth long squad, like, and I was very much a bag old, a very long, like I wasn't, I've been going, but you were still training with a purpose mm -hmm. of competing at a high level. And just remembering that there were days when I was like, fuck, I'm too sore at the gym today. Mm. Like, do you know what I mean? Or I'm too, like, whatever it was, you know. And actually remembering that a lot of my athletes that I coach now, they want to be the best football players out there. So there's a balance where actually my, my training, my programming has to complement their week yeah. and what that feeling. These boys run bloody 50k weeks in preseason. Yeah, running like, geez, man. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, I, how, like, so how can I expect them to come up and just. I know what the most theoretically sound thing is for developing yeah. strength. I know what the archetypal model, I know the research, but there's also a, a realism and an understanding that yeah, like- it's research versus reality. influences yeah. a lot of how you feel and, and, and stuff. We like hit this a lot. Yeah. Research yeah. versus reality. Yeah. Uh, especially with things like intangibles. Yeah. Like injuries. Yeah. Like pre-existing injuries. Yeah, so we know what we should be doing, mm. but what can the athlete do? And, and, and even just pitching it like because my like, buy-ins are also super important you know me me coming over say working my wrestlers now because i say i'm not a competitive re I've, I've compete i'm not a high level wrestler like i like wrestling and stuff but me trying to translate that to them footy was the same mm. like me turning up sounding like this can't kick a ball straight and i've never watched a game of footy <laughs> and i'm saying boys you need to be doing this like yeah. all my messaging and, and it's not just message i believe it, it was about right like this is how i feel like we can complement your ability to go and train and you know our injury was really good because that was a big focus of what yeah. we did. And a lot of my grapplers, the biggest, um, the biggest feedback I've gotten is one or two, two things. One, 
boys who used to be anti-gym and oh nah, I don't need to gym I just need to grapple I just they actually start to like it yeah because it's like, that whole thing you said about like the the process of training realizing the benefits and it not I'm not trying to turn them into weightlifters mm. I'm letting them use strength to develop yeah. their training but the other thing as well was their scheduling yeah. so actually the biggest influence I've had in a lot of these fellas I've just taken on the fella in um in the UK now Ryan Morgan and the um his training was everywhere, like jogging, and he's like, hard, like all these boys, like they love training, they're hard trainers, they, they love all these bits and pieces. But there was a real clear lack of structure, and like from, from my experience, I can go right. Well, this makes sense here. This makes sense here. Like tough shit, you need to rest here because of what you know. You know and those bits mm. and pieces, and like that's been the biggest feedback that a lot of guys had. Is like again back to the foot example. They train more frequently at a higher intensity, but because it's done sensibly. And like mm. great examples, like I think traditionally in footy is so we know power work's important. We know jumping, like you know, all those bits and pieces. But the boys go and run twelve k's on the track, and then they, they do that in the afternoon. Mm. And it's like I wouldn't want to fucking jump around and do plyos after running twelve k's. Mm. So I need to find ways to put that in part of the week where it makes sense. Yeah, it's it's very interesting that you say that because that's the the one disconnect that I see with grappling athletes because uh, yeah it is so volume heavy right yeah and they don't want to miss training and they don't, or they don't want to feel like shit at training mm. so they feel like if they're doing too much quote unquote strength and conditioning or they're doing a strength session out of turn and they're going to have doms they're going to mm. be sore they're not going to be able to perform at tonight's session but it's like is that a session that you need to perform in and Absolutely. does your nutrition Absolutely. reflect yeah. your capacity to then turn around and perform? Because they want to train all day, but they don't want to eat right, and they don't want to do strength work, or, or they want to be that. Andre Galvar. Like, e so their even, goals don't match up with their actions. Yeah, even like, like it's about past experience, right? Like if you never go to the gym, and then you, you go and train, you, you do 10 sets of 10 back squat because you've seen it in a men's fitness magazine yeah, or some yeah. knobhead on Insta, like, you know, all those bits. Guess what's going to yeah, happen? Yeah. And then you don't do it for two weeks. Yeah. And again, it's yeah. that like level of consistency and drip feeding yeah. in, like consistency, you can tolerate it. Mm. Like it's amazing like what you adapt to and what you learn to tolerate yeah. if you're consistent and you're willing to put those, like say someone like, like Nora, for instance, and now like, I see her bits on, on Insta and stuff like that, and like she'll train consistently guess what you're probably not hugely sore at any mm. point after that and that goes back to the schedule yeah. and the general and, and like you say all the other bits and pieces that come with yeah. you know lifestyle and that's that. why having an experienced conditioning coach is important because mm. a lot of people that i know they internalize that thought process they go well i want to do this and i want to do that and i want to do that strength session but i'll be too sore so mm. they don't have a person that they can come to verbalize that internalized you know, mm. process that they go through and have them go all right well that's a, you know it's a valid concern let's do this this and this to offset that mm. now they don't have any excuses the other thing as well <laughs> i think is like like look fuck at the end of the day as well with the strength you, you have to crack an egg to make an omelet don't you like there's mm. going to be times when you're sort when you yeah. have to adapt it. but the big thing is the messaging around it so yeah again we compete all season long that like you can't taper all year but there'll be periods in the year um Probably best example I've got of it was with our with the England and the twenties. So I came in quite late with them for a World Cup um, competition, and um, they had had a history in the previous few years of picking up injuries. Their gym mm. program they they tapered super early and stuff like that. And like the Welsh model we had was very gym heavy, and mm. you know it was kind of like I was working for Bristol then, which was in England, and they were like, look, can you come in and like you know like let's like share like what we because we probably went so far the other way, and and we found like a bit of a middle ground of it, but. These are boys from all different clubs, don't know me from Adam, like 
Bristol weren't a hugely high-performing side at the time. And I came in and I just did, but basically the communication around that, sorry, what I'm trying to get to is, I sat them down at the start of the campaign. And I was like, this week in the campaign, we're gonna train up until that point. And we had two games beforehand. And I was like, I said like, you're probably gonna be at your most sore then. You're probably not gonna wanna train. Like, you know, these are periods when you're gonna have doms, etc., mm. things like that. Because we had a 15 day window afterwards where you, you hold your strength for 15 days, like mm. from, a, from a physiological perspective. And I was like, from there we'll take up. And I said like, but, you know, and if we don't, you hold me accountable to what I'm telling you here now. But the messaging was like, expect to be sore because, and, but there's a plan, you know? Mm. And we got that to the session, the boys were knackered and I literally pulled up the same slide and you saw them, oh fuck, like, you know what I mean? It's like, but we went through, we had a really good session drop them out and, and, they, and they slingshot it into it. And it's yeah. the same with the footy guys. It's like, there's some periods in season where boys, the next two weeks are gonna be hard. I was like, but I will reward you afterwards mm. with, a, with a lighter block, you know? And it's like, so we need to bar up here. And even just guys, like guys don't like feeling sore when they're not expecting mm. it. So it's like, you yeah, know, it's like, right. oh shit, I wasn't, you know, if you tell them, look, you're gonna be sore tomorrow, but mm. you've got a day off after, you yeah. know, you put it in the right places. That plan actually yeah. gives people faith, you know? Because guys want to work hard. Mm. They want to go at it. Yeah. But if they don't see the worth in it, or if they don't, or if they think it's going to be detrimental to them, then they won't work that hard. Yeah. I know, especially when you get a group of people together who are trying to outwork each other. Yeah. They want to go. They're competitive athletes. Or, or as a coach, like you just don't acknowledge it. Mm. So like I say, sometimes you get it wrong. Like, like genuinely, sometimes I've, I've probably pushed the dial a little bit too hard. We pitched a bit sore for games as we go. Mm. And then it's like, like traditionally guys, like, ah, nah, you should be like, it's like, ah, nah, fuck, probably, probably did, didn't we? So mm. like, let's, you know, it's like, like, fuck, do you, do, you, do you kick a ball badly in a game? Do you, like, say, do you make bad decisions and stuff like that? It's like, it happens, like, do you know what yeah. I mean? But even just having that awareness is like, well, we'll learn from it from next time, you know? Mm. And it's like, if, you, if you're just show an element that you're willing to, to listen and learn and, and kind of reflect on that, I think that goes a long way. Yeah. But it's like going back to that, it's like, yeah, if you know, like, this pit, so um, one of my guys has just had a week off after the IMMF, and... He messaged me on Monday because that session was fucking hard. I was like, yeah, it's not, like I said, back into it now. Yeah. You're so far away from comp. Like, and, but he doesn't mind that. And he never used to like training. But he, again, he's like, he's seen the benefit from when we taper, when we feel real sharp, when we feel mm. real strong. But he'll put the work back in there now. Yeah. And that's like, as long as you know where it's coming, that's, that's all you need, I think. That's like, huge you know? because yeah. you know when it's time to go and mm. when it's time to pull back. So you frame it that way. And then you're going to work harder. If it was just this endless grind where you had to smash every session out, you're not. You're going to pull back. It'd be so unsustainable. Yeah, it's very interesting what you say about, yes, messaging and framework and how that has a direct physical response with an athlete. Mm. I've, I've noticed this quite recently within myself. Yeah, so the example that I'll give is nationals. In the past, when I've come into a jiu-jitsu competition or a, anything really, like a, any type of competitive thing, I've built it up so much in my mind that I have to peak up and all that. I did none of that. I looked at my training week and, you know, Jackie did this as well. And it's like, I'm grappling every day. I'm doing a strength and conditioning session. What would I change about my training week that would better mm. prepare me for this competition? <clears throat> and we literally could come up with nothing. There was nothing that we could change that would make it better. And because of that, then we looked back 
at the say eight weeks of training we've already done where we're doing comp sessions and we're doing high low intensity we're doing recovery we're doing strength and conditioning it's just the way we always operate now yeah. becomes very normalized so there wasn't that like intense magnification of emotion around yeah. this event and what that equated to was after we went and competed we just hop back, back in the gym yeah. the next day yeah. As opposed to like, oh, that was this massive thing. I mm. rose up to it. Now I'm going to be off for three months. So, so we've, like, I, I've been really fortunate, like, because like working in team sport, like you say, you don't always get an opportunity to win, to compete in finals and things like that and stuff. And I've, I've been part of some teams that have won things and lost and, you know, getting to those points. But one of the things I've always been huge on is like, keep going, man. If that's what's got you there, like, like it comes to finals week, or it comes to, and everyone just like, mood changes yeah, people yeah. scramble they change people things, like yeah. in like especially in a league it's format, an emotional like, response yeah it's, it's yeah. just it's, it's, and it comes from a good place it comes mm. from really you know but it's like so we played um, we played um, in the Six Nations with the under 20s we, we won a Grand Slam and our last game was against Italy and, and with all with all respect for them they, they'd lost their foot like, so, and it was a home game and okay. we were steamrolling through and our, our a uh, second to last game, which we had to win to get a, a grand slam opportunity against England away, which is traditionally like a really like challenging game, you know. But they weren't having a great year themselves, and you know, literally like the, the conversation was like, "Boys, like, like, like it's got us this far. You back your process. We keep going. Like, you don't tweak. You don't change. You don't because if you've got a plan and it's going well, stick to it, right? Like, don't suddenly deviate mm-hmm. to try and like. I only think the time you do that is after. A block of time when you know something's consistently not working you've got yeah. to start a new a yeah. new thing like you know and it's like yeah like why why when you've been comfortable for 40 weeks of a year doing the same thing do you suddenly change it and you and you see it in like fight camps a lot and things like that guys always look for oh different 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 yeah. different and it's actually like you, you normally see guys go back to their grounding mm-hmm. sometimes don't you when when things don't go well and stuff and it, yeah. it's like different equals adaption which equals progress and that's generally pr- a pretty good rule of thumb but it's not uh it's not like a it's not gospel not yeah. by any means like adaption just... is good when it is quantifiable again mm. like if you can see if you feel and see the benefit and you can equate it to the performance benefit then it was viable and it's like having like so being like ah oh, okay this is where we struggled well, it makes sense that A plus B, well, I can, you know, it's, it's kind of, if you can make an educate and you go, right, this actually makes sense, we try and change them up grand. But don't just suddenly, like, you know, tear it into shreds and just, like, it, it's, just, it's just a sign of composure, confidence in, mm. your, in yourself, in your processes, and experience. Yeah, you know, and it's, 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 yeah. Con- it's a form of consistency. Mm. Mental consistency equates to physical consistency. Yep. So if you can see things big picture and go, right, well... I said, just like what you said before, I said that I was going to give this three months. I'm at one and a half. Mm. It doesn't feel like it's getting any better yet, so I'm just going to scrap it and do something else, right? That was mental inconsistency. Mm. You were impatient with the process. This actually happens way more in the realm of nutrition and food than it does with with physical because we sort of like get the idea that I need to you know, progressively overload. Even people who don't do much weights in general get the sort concept, of concept yeah, yeah. of progressive overload. But then when they look at their nutrition, if they don't see an immediate return, then they're like, fuck it, I'm going to completely change everything until I'm six kilos lighter at the yeah. end of this week. 
I want to lose six kilos and I want to do it this week. Well, it takes, it takes time as well, right? It's like, you, you know, like I've, I've noticed that. You'll, you'll normally notice if someone comes to try and work with you and they pick you up super quick mm. and they just go all at it and then they're gone in eight weeks. And, mm. and you just see them jumping from coach to coach, from yeah. to gym yeah. to gym, from yeah. like, and you know, it's like, I think the one thing like you can't shortchange is your physical development. Like, you, can't, you can't cram it, you can't revise. Like you can, look, if you, if you know, if you know you're, you're fighting Khabib, you can cram a style to try and negate that, right? And you yeah. can train that way in a short space of time, but you can't suddenly develop physically. Like, it, it's, it, like it's the only thing you can't shortchange. No, you know? and it, it, look, consistency, that's why a lot of kids who started in a physical development sport have quite a yeah. leg up. You know, I, you know I, I sort of knock swimming and gymnastics and shit sometimes because it's a little bit... I, th- I feel they ask too much of their junior athletes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but at the same time... You know, I had such a good athletic development period in my life when I was a swimmer and it was smart in a way because it wasn't, they weren't getting us in there doing bench press and base athletic development. It was a lot more about core strength, mobility, flexibility, strength through range of motion, mm-hmm. um, strength to weight, to weight ratio, power output, this type of thing. So they were, they're quite advanced elements for a young athlete to be exposed to, but they were directly correlated with their performance and technique yeah. as well. Yeah. So it's like if your core isn't strong enough and your intercostal uh, intercostal balancing isn't adept enough in the frontal plane because you're not standing, you're not bipedal when you're mm. swimming, then you won't be able to perform the technique that your coach is asking you to perform. You won't be strong or balanced yeah. enough. You're not going to be efficient enough. You're not going to be able to rotate far enough with your shoulders to perform technique. So it was always conditioning for technique. That's how Strength you can tell you time well. That rolled off the tongue, that. Like, yeah, yeah. Well, man, like, <laughs> hey, I'm, I'm, I was yeah. an Australian kid who was in national squads yeah. and swimming. They take that shit yeah, seriously, man. Yeah. They take it real serious. Because it's um, just like NFL, right? There's a bajillion guys yeah. right behind you ready to take your spot. But further yeah. to this, actually, which is really interesting, we all have those guys in the gym who are like, slick technique monsters right mm-hmm. and they're just like train every day every day pull harder like doing triangles and arm bars off their back mainly because they don't have the athleticism to get takedowns but that's neither here nor there anyway um but they'll profess that that's all that they need or maybe they're not that strong maybe they want to be stronger but they're doing well with mm-hmm. their technique you get a guy in the gym who's played rugby who's gone through a strength and conditioning development phase in their life, maybe they were a youth or junior athlete, that's squat, deadlift, bench press, base lifts, you know, base development lifts that has taught them a lot about planes of movement, how their body works. It's basically weaponized their spine and their anatomy because now they are strong through their posterior chain and they are connected. They also know, their body knows how to balance and react under mm-hmm. pressure, under load, under force because of being tackled. You and they put used to them, yes, well, right? exactly. Like they don't yeah. shy away. They're not like thinking about how they're going to grapple. They just get body yeah. contact straight away. Yeah. That's, that's their comfort zone. Yeah. Right? You put them in a grappling class and they will excel. Yeah. They will excel. I think it's one of those things where, like, and I've kind of, and this is just my opinion, right? But like, this is where the advancement of the sport will probably come is like traditionally and i'm probably talking more more even mma jits and stuff like that but it was more you know guys who even love fighting love love that but also like may have taken up for self-defense may have like do you know what i mean and it's never been a mainstream sport you've never got like your like 
uh, physical ability is genetic lottery, right? And and those guys see our oh, rugby, I can make more, you know, it's a bigger sport. Like, mm. you know, as these sports grow and grow and grow, you're slowly going to start getting more of these like guys and girls who are at the top of their genetic pool, who see there's a career in grappling, mm. who see that, and it was slowly, I mean, he's, and like also what you get is kids doing it from four years old now, right? Yeah, that's you right. Know, yeah. I mean, you look at like, like r- wrestling in Russia, you see mm. footage from wrestling in Russia and there's like 200 folks and they're like just all starting young, you know, mm. like going at it. That, that, I, I tell you, sorry, I'm going to go off on it now, but I'll tell you what was like really interesting, judo, wrestling, and things that you notice that like Eastern European countries tend to be pretty good at them mm-hmm. because, you know, there's no professional sport, there's no money to, to fund a, a full-time soccer, you know, it's mm. like within reason, but a medal at an Olympics is their, is their meal ticket. Mm. And if they train like flat out from that from a young age and they are that top of the pool mm. it's like it's really hard to compete we compete in the uk with sports science and support and drive whereas those guys actually compete just by having to be the best at what they yeah, are in their pool do. and it's about their, and they their get career streamlined into it they get yeah. funneled into it from a young age so as you start getting like people say if you're a 14 year old girl or a guy and you're looking at adcc and you go fuck that looks cool like i want to you know i want to be like, you know because that's always the thing that like gravitates people towards yeah. it is like seeing it and understanding it and stuff yeah. but you start to get people picking these type of sports instead of mm. rugby you get them starting to pick these instead of track or footy or whatever yeah. it looks like you'll slowly start to see like and it's probably talking like 15 20 years time mm. but you'll start to see a, it's like mma like you look at the mma fighters now versus what they were 15 years ago yeah 100 like they're athletes now man fuck me you see guys like you get Osmer, guys like, in that you know, range like, right yeah. that 85 kilo to 100 kilo range those are the guys who could have played any sport yeah. Yeah. Now, guys in lighter weight classes, they're looking for weight class-based sports. Mm-hmm. They're not going to be in the NFL. No. 85 to 100 to 120, they could have been superstars in lots of sports. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So the fact that they are now choosing MMA speaks to the not just the popularity of mixed martial arts, but the quality of it. Yeah. Like the quality of what they're, they're training that they're getting and... You know the value that the individual athlete places on mixed martial arts. It used, it used to be style, be style, right? Yeah. It was a karate guy versus yeah. a, a, a kickboxer, yeah. or like, and now it's just like, now you like, um, like Mason, one of the boys who trains out of Craig's place. Like, he's like black belt judo, black belt jujitsu, mm. unbeaten pro boxer. Like, was um, double champ in uh, cage warriors and two weight categories, and he's still on the undercards in the UFC, and like. Fuck me, like that, that level of athlete, you know what I mean? You're yeah. still not like, like, I roll with him and like, I, I say, I, I back myself to have a good roll with most people and stuff. I can't, I can't really move him, like he's about 10 kilo lighter than me. And I'm there and like, he's also not punching me in the head while he's at yeah, it as well, yeah, like, do you know what I mean? Right. And it's like, you just, I don't think people, like when the, the casual fan sees, you know, your main event fighters and stuff, like, I don't think people understand how fucking impressive yeah. you are. Well, what, the most, what most people's concept of fighting is, Fighting for fighting's sake. Now, most of those, like, there still exists today. There's fighter fighters and there's athlete fighters, right? Mm -hmm. So the fighter fighters are like Nick and Nate Diaz. And then there's... Yeah, yeah, they're fighter fighters, right? And then the athlete fighters like George St. Pierre and and these types of guys, right? But even the Diaz brothers are fucking triathletes, like, in their own right, you know what I mean? You mean you look at Taito Ivasa, you tell me he's never picked up a rugby, never, like, bread ball, laced on the boots, like, he's never kicked a footy, like... I think the fighting is one of those things where, like, like, no one looks at, like, the Lakers and thinks, yeah, I could probably dunk on Kobe. But, like, (laughs) do you know what I mean? No one looks at him and goes, yeah, you know what, but but Uh, everyone thinks they've got a punch, and it's just a, it's just a, I don't know whether it's a survival instinct or something great, it's like, 
you know what? I reckon if I could get a shot off on Diaz, like, it's like, mate, <laughs> no. you, would, you would not touch these fuckers. But it's like, just you know? lack of concept of what yeah. they're dealing with. Like, I don't think I could beat John Jones at anything. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, Table tennis. Like, yeah. I, I couldn't even rack more lines than him. You know what I mean? Like, he's got it on, in every field. Like, he's, he's got it. You know what I mean? But, I mean, that's the thing. When we, you know, as what you're talking about right now, like, the advent of professional fighting, that, that means something different now than what it yeah. used to. And so will professional grappling. Yeah. So I'll, I'll go off on another tangent now. I saw a, um, a documentary on um, American decathletes, mm-hmm. on American decathlon, because apparently, well, I learned, they actually have a really rich history of it. Okay. And where it comes from is their development system for their young athletes in schools. So in uh, Eastern European or European bloc countries, it's more so done with, say, gymnastics and calisthenics and body-weighted exercises, mm-hmm. right? But No equipment, right? No equipment. Yeah, yeah. And from that process, they'll see who has more natural attributes in what area, so what the kids have, and they'll funnel them into certain things, whether it's combat sports, whether it's a ball sport, whatever it is. They assess their attributes through that criteria. What the American schooling system was doing was they were doing that assessment period with the weights room and track and field. Mm-hmm. So initially, they'd have the kids do everything. They'd see what they could do, you know, how many chin-ups they could do, yeah. push-ups they could do. And then they'd add weighted exercises, and that became more comprehensive through time. But they felt that that wasn't enough to truly assess those intangibles and the natural movement and uh, competency capabilities of an individual. So then they started having them run, mm-hmm. jump, throw, you know, uh, pull, push, like... Yeah. That pure athleticism, yeah, right? pure like, athleticism, yeah. and then you know, based on their performance over the four hundred, they would funnel them into a certain sport, or based on their acceleration rate, they would funnel mm-hmm. them into the football program. Based on their ability to throw the discus and shot put, they would funnel yeah. them into like the wrestling program, or in baseball, or stay with athletics. But because they were doing that from such a young age, they just generated a whole bunch of Good awesome, athletes. well-rounded yeah. athletes yeah. who could basically do anything and ended up doing decathlon. Okay, yeah. Um, and I thought that was absolutely fascinating. Yeah. And they still sort of do that to a certain extent, but it's just more more comprehensive and strategic now. You look at um, so like because like part of my background, I worked in Welsh tennis. And that was in our youth Fuck, fight. Fuck, dude, you've done everything. <laughs> Are you fucking kidding me? You're like Six Nations rugby. Like you've got athletes all around the world. Like it's judo, it's wrestling, and tennis as well. Like yeah, what haven't you oh, done, man? Oh, quite I a bit, like yeah. I'm lucky yeah. I can wrestle you, bro. I'm lucky we can grapple. I don't think I can beat you at any other sport. Pretty sure shit. I am at fucking most technical things. Like, I should have that background. Like yeah, no, I can't, Jesus, I can't hit man. a ball, can't kick a football. You've like, done everything, man. International man of mystery. Like if you told oh. me you were double. Seven, I would not. I would believe. I'm not Please. smooth. Not smooth. Yeah. But. Please continue. Like, you got uh, Gavin. You don't need to be smooth. Nah, he just will bore me. Like, I, yeah. Nah, like um. But our like, so we work with kids from like eight years old to twenty four in the performance program, and like, you all you are is really lucky to work with my time at Cardiff Met. So, uh, Rodri Lloyd and John Oliver, are two huge researchers in youth physical development, and um, like. Basically, the whole philosophy was around that. Like, you know, we, we, we develop really simple movement competencies. So, like, you know, push, pull, hop, land, jump. Like, like again, like, really bread and butter bits and pieces. And, like, our mindset was around, like, you know, like, these guys may not end up... Like, tennis is a hard fucking sport to make it in. Like, you know I mean? You have guys who sit at the top for, you know, the Williams sisters and Federer and, like, 
you know, they sit there for a lot. You can play and perform at tennis at a high level for a long time. And, but we were hopeful that either way, these kids would come out and be good athletes. And like, it was really interesting. One of the girls I coached, um, um, I, I, left, I left there, I think, I think I coached her from like, what, like 11 to 13. And then like six years later, it just popped up that she was playing rugby for Wales. Mm. And it's like, man, like no shit, like, do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. she was a great athlete. And yeah. like, tennis is another sport like swimming where it's like they train, they hit in the morning two hours, they hit in the evening two hours. And they're really good professionals, man. Like, like so many sports, they're probably the most professional athletes I've ever worked with, I think, even though they were kids. And it was obviously hugely driven by yeah. parents and governing bodies and stuff. But the, the program was excellent. Mm. And like, you go back to like, your example with the swimming is like a lot of sports are pure outcome measures. Mm-hmm. You can um, you know, reverse engineer and, and you know, you can essentially identify someone who'll be quite good at those. And you know, like, you're, like if I was working in swimming, I would like, cause people have swam for however many hundreds of years and there's only so many ways you can. And like the technical coaches probably know more than I would do about how to make guys better for it. So I just do what they ask me mm-hmm. for them to get better at, you know? And um, like the thing that we get with grappling and other bits and pieces is like they're not as clean cut. It's not like you throw the furthest you want. Like, can you produce the most rotational force? Can you, you know, like I think um, a really interesting one was um, with Team GB cycling, um, like cross paths with a guy who was the, the head, the head sort of coach then. And they did all these um, for their track sprinters. They did all these reverse. Um, like our sprint cyclists, sorry, but all their reverse engineering, they basically came to the conclusion that the biggest thigh girth like won, <laughs> and they literally just started smashing the crap out of the hypertrophy. Yeah. And, it, and it, like again, it worked. Like you yeah. know what I mean? And I think that's the thing with grappling is, is there's not that a equals you know. Yeah, I, I think it's also because it's a combat like, sport yeah. as well. Yeah. Like I mean, grappling wrestling has been around since people could. Yeah. Attack each other. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so the technical development has always been there. The technique of what you can do to a, one person to another person has always has mm. been there, and that is a form of interaction, right? But it's an ever-changing form of interaction. So if you're in a pool, the water and the way we interact with that outside element heavily dictates our technique mm-hmm. so we can always improve the way we interact so we can take video of uh, our streamline and our uh, ability to ride wake where we are situated in the pool relative to our competitors people, yeah. um, point, relative yeah. to the bottom of the pool because it okay. creates a different drag and a different wake if it's a really deep pool that's awesome different to yeah, a really shallow pool so where you know when you're doing underwater work um, you will generate one type of wake that carries below you really low but when you're on the top of the water you generate a really like a a strong wake that carries that could carry continuously bounce through the top so when you um when you turn in swimming with the way that you turn you have especially if you're a sprinter and you're going very quickly you'll have to go really low when you come out of that turn otherwise you're going to smash straight back into a really strong wake that you've created but if you go low too low it's almost like it'll pancake you and squash you at the bottom of the pool so you have to go low but not low and not too low just low enough so that it slingshots you back and that's that's a technique right but if you're a long distance swimmer that's less relevant to you but you can still use the tactic Mm. Right, mm. so you can go at a measurable pace, and then when you're 15 out, generate a wake and let it slingshot you, so that yeah. you, the rest of your. Fuck, I would never, easy. I would never have thought about but that. But this yeah. is the thing, yeah. like that 
do you say that's a strategy, a tactic, or a technique? Because physically, we have to modify the way that we swim in order to make that outcome take, take precedence. But the way that we're doing freestyle is different. Based on your body type, yeah. your arm rating, your bounce and buoyancy, it changes your technique. So it's what we're interacting with. I think with sprinting, it's a little bit different. Yeah. The yeah. interaction is your body type. Yeah. I think the ground, the way we interact with the ground will yeah. be uh, dictated by how low you are to the ground, your center of gravity, the mm -hmm. length of your limbs. That'll create a different strike rate and strike point on your feet when yeah. you run. So I think Even in like, terms of that, like I mean, F1 that's hard yeah, to do. Yeah, that's okay. really hard to yeah. do, that type of quantifiable technical measure with grappling. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Because it's just like, there's so many variables, right? Like, I mean, shit, you look at, like, that's really interesting for me, right? Because that's all new info, mm -hmm. right? But you, you look at swimming as being a mid-level um, variable sport then, say, mm -hmm. for instance, like, you know, like, like weightlifting, very low variable same plate same competition bar same the only variables are your mindset your you know your preparation building in yeah. but the actual activity is a closed skill mm. activity you know um that's like mid-level you look at then like you you know if you square the variables for like weightlifting say as an example to um pool to even like outdoor pool when you've got environment mm. to grappling like yeah. you know it's just like it's just the level of variable is so vast mm. that it doesn't make sense and this is why like I personally think as a strength coach, I would, I would struggle. I'd certainly have to learn to redevelop my coaching process mm. and stuff, working in a sport like shot put, like high jump, yeah. like et cetera, things like that. But that's why my, my philosophy around like combat sport, team sports probably sits quite well. I mm. personally think because it's, you're, you're trying to find a level of consistency amongst them. And so chaotic and mm. so different that you, you know, even you look at rugby, like, like different wingers, different, like, you know, it's like the level of variables are so different that actually you can't be specific in your preparation other than the technical, tactical yeah. nuances, like you say, that you're relating to. So how do you gain them by spending more time being exposed to different scenarios, different situations, mm -hmm. different, like, you know, even like how we do it here where you, like, some comp nights are ADCC around, some are like IBJJF, yeah. you know, it's like some are wrestling, some are like, you know, it's like the more... Um, data points and frames of reference and experiences you've had as you go through probably allow you to like you know like how say like someone like Fionn Davis who was like a cadet when I was with Welsh Judo mm. like like she competed internationally in judo for so long how much did that help her yeah you know along the ways and you know you see her getting like like throws with the overhooks and stuff like that mm. and like it's like you know but she's also physically more dominant yeah than those than those people who haven't gone through that type of athletic development phase like they're really, and that's what Ronda Rousey had. Yeah. Ronda Rousey came from judo, heavily regimented, heavily strength and conditioning based because it's an Olympic sport, government mm -hmm. subsidized sport with the pre-existing traditions of, you know, that get broken when it now becomes Olympic. Competed regularly, right? yeah. you know, like, yeah. And she was far and away at the time in her prime, a better athlete, just base level athlete than her competitors. Like Beth Coher wasn't quite at the same yeah. Yeah. You know, tier yeah. as Ronda Rousey. But it's, yeah, it's very it's, much it's like those this. guys that pay, like we said about how anime's changed now. It was guys like that. When, when, when an elite athlete mm. turned up in the semi-elite sport yeah. that MMA was and wiped the floor with everyone, people go, oh shit, what do they do? Yeah. You know what I mean? And, like, and now it's become what it has. Like, Even you know? when Brock Lesnar rocked up, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, yeah. I, really, I really feel like one of the first 
the first wave of them happened in Pride with like Coleman and Kerr mm-hmm. uh, and even like Couture to a certain extent, Randleman. Like when that wave of hyper athletes, like Hughes and fellas, like, yeah, just, like, and they were all like, yeah. wrestlers, yeah, and American wrestlers as well, mm-hmm. where the strength and conditioning was paramount. They were all like they're like speed, power, athletic base. Whereas you know, again, the European wrestlers and Russian wrestlers weren't so much. Yeah. They were much more. Um, Traditional, yeah, like, like calisthenic yeah, as yeah, well. Like yeah. if you look at the body type of the best guys at that time, you know, the best depiction of this I can say is Fedor versus Randleman, mm. and it ended up being Fedor's like technical capacity to yeah. overcome Randleman's physical dominance yeah. uh, that made the difference. But that wasn't always the case, and that wasn't the case in the UFC. You had guys that were like, yeah, Tank Abbott and shit, and then they just get domed by mm. real athletes. Mm. But I guess it, I guess the approach that we take now with training teams versus training individual athletes, it just must evolve so rapidly when it's an individual athlete because based on the standing of where they are in their sport in general or the time period that they're at in their yeah. sport in general, it might change the way they train. You know what? I'll give I'll use myself as an example. Mm. So me now, thirty four. I'm a black belt in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. If I want to compete, I'm going to be competing against other black belts. Uh, And I want to compete at the open weight class as well. 88 kilos. The cutoff for the next lightest weight class is 85. And the cutoff at the weight class that I would compete in would be at 91. Now, the way that I operate and my style is apparently a little bit more speed-based, a little bit more technical-based. I'm slightly more flexible than I look. Um, so I play guard differently than people would expect, and I'm harder to wrestle than people would expect. So for me, my line of thinking is very different to what it used to be. If I was sitting in this position, say, at brown or purple, I'd be thinking, well, I'm going to get down to 85. I might even try and get down to 79 or 82 based on my height, right? Because that's where I'd have an, an advantage, quote unquote. Well, they'd all be as fast as me. They'd all be as mobile as me, as dexterous as me. But someone who's 91, they're likely going to be stronger than me. They might not be as fast as I am in certain ways in terms of agility. They're probably not going to be as dexterous or flexible as me. And I may have a strategic technical advantage based on the style of game that I play in that weight class. Therefore, I'm not going to lose weight to compete. I'm going to potentially gain weight to compete for the first time ever in, in my career, quote unquote. Um, but I'm basing that on my style and where I am in the weight class and the fact that I want to compete at open weight. So the way that I train is dictated by that. Mm. Instead of doing um, like metabolic grinder sessions where I'm trying to lose weight and stay mobile, I'm staying mobile at training, mm. like in the technical classes. My strength work is just that. It's strength work. I'm mm. doing five by fives yeah. again. You know what I mean? Yeah. I'm doing, you know, this would be a good, a good exercise for us, yeah. right? Yeah. So, you know, five by five on the chest press at, you know, 40 to 45 kilo dumbbells each hand. I can row quite heavy. I can row almost 50 kilos on a hand. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's relatively heavy for me. I put that in a super. And I might do an incline press, which is alternating. So instead of pressing both hands at the same time, I will um, hover one, uh, not at 
uh, peak extension but peak flexion mm -hmm. and then I'll alternate um, mm -hmm. so that I can get that rotation effect in a higher range because I find that when I'm pummeling, when I'm grappling, pummeling, um, there's that, it's that in a higher line for my chest and shoulder girdle. It's not like a low carving mm -hmm. chest press, mm -hmm. it's in a higher line. And often my counter rotation is challenged at the same time. So I'm trying to add a small, a very small functional element whilst at the same time increasing my strength yeah. range. Um, I do my row work gripped, hand-to-hand -hand gripped, mm -hmm. and I do it in a range where I can enclose my elbows, but I'm still trying to go quite heavy. I take a mm -hmm. staggered grip when I do that, and I do it with cables in different ranges of motion. Mm -hmm. um, and I usually do that as a super as well. The other thing that I'll do for my lower body is split leg deads a little bit lighter than I would usually do. Mm -hmm. So I can do that in a wrestling stance, and I use sort of like a triple extension but not with my feet parallel. So I use a wrestling stance, triple extension, a little bit lighter, so a little bit more speed. And I usually superset that with a sled where I'm in a low frontal plane. I do that quite heavy. Yeah. Um, the And sometimes I'll superset that with a rotation-based movement, but I've felt that that's been less necessary recently mm -hmm. because of how much actual grappling I'm doing. The last thing that I'll do is generally a grip or a shoulder girdle based matrix where I'm trying to make my shoulders work uh, under fatigue and then work with stability and then I really uh, try to put a little bit more emphasis on my ability to snap a necktie mm -hmm. so instead of just doing straight necktie snaps on a cable machine I'll do things that challenge the function of a necktie where I have yeah. to isometrically hold from inside out where I have to utilize um, a stance um, to counter rotate and there's like <clears throat> I try to challenge the different points of the snap down or mm -hmm. the different points of the necktie yeah, yeah. Um, as opposed to just doing a necktie over and over and over again yeah how would that factor in yeah or what advice would you give me based on what I'm doing right now and what my goals are yeah and how I could tailor it and, and monitor it that's not so, all that I do nah basically. nah nah well, the, fir the first the first thing on that is like it's excellent. You, you've got a really clear outcome and a style that you want to... So, like, say if I was working with you there now, that makes my life super easy in terms of, like, actually addressing the areas that you want to work on as a highly experienced, like, practitioner. I think um, going back to one of the original points, like, the, the level of experience the competitor determines a lot of, like, how much of that type of work probably needs to be done and your previous experience of strength training. So if you were a relatively inexperienced uh, strength trainer who was a black belt trying to do exactly the same bits and pieces I would probably bring it back a level mm -hmm. and I would be like super general you know yeah. again same sort of thing so you know and and if you're a white belt like competitor even if you were quite well versed in strength trainer I'd probably spend, spend more time on the mat and, and build that general base and let it complement your, your training like you know Jackie's giving and, you the lip because she's a white belt <laughs> <laughs> yeah probably like the, the hardest white belt I know <laughs> <laughs> but like you know and I, I think um, so it, it comes back down to like my, if I if I go to my my most sort of fundamental points of what my philosophy is is the exercise that you choose what physical qualities are you trying to develop mm. and how do you design your session to maximally develop those those things so if you're saying you're going to be fighting other weight category your speed is, is kind of taken care of and box ticking and those bits and pieces and you, you will likely be at a higher level than your, your other competitors, 
but you might lose um, a little bit of balance in some of the strength size, like force producing capabilities. I would look at how we can maximize, maximize those qualities. So some of those things you've explained are quite um, specific in terms of like you're looking at, so say you're looking at, at, at rowing with your, with your gable grip and, you, and you're, you're pulling with that in a split stance. Like my kind of philosophy would be to look at if you're trying to improve your your force producing capability, your lack back to Gordon Ryan example, your, your lack of eccentric yield and mm-hmm. exposure and stuff like that. How can I provide the biggest stimulus to mm-hmm. develop that? And like, you know, I spoke about it with one of my wrestlers actually recently because um, there's a point I'll get back to in your snap down one in a second. But he wants to be a very similar way. But we were talking about. You shoot with a single leg, and you, you know you kind of sometimes get drawn out into a longer position, and, and like resisting that. Like he was talking about doing some similar type of rowing, and I was like, well, look, if you if you chin, if you do a fucking heavy weighted chin, like I, I I'll chin sixty kilo for three, like before I rupture my bicep, like, <laughs> and, you know, like but unrelated, you know, unrelated, <laughs> like but like you know your ability to that, that's if you wanted to isolate those structures to tolerate the most lowly centrically is that that would be the way to do it but then combining that with exposure to that specific technical element is super important as well so i think there's elements where some of it could be a little bit more general but then what i really like so your special exercises if you want for lack of a better term again i think replicating the gym scenario like if you're holding and, and this has probably been really like micro level but saving you rolling a cable with it it's like it's not a leg Mm. It's not moving back. Mm. It's not pulling back. It's not. So there's a level of specificity we can get closer to. It's also not maximizing some of those physical qualities, mm. capacity, your lap, your bicep, your tendons, etc. So my, what I really like is the idea of like using your gym work to really hone in on that general quality. But then I think what a lot of guys don't do, like when you go technique and, and spa, you miss some stuff in the middle which might be like, and we do it actually really well here, like a situational journey. It's like, right, start on a single leg. And, you know, like his aim is to sprawl out of it, you know, whatever it might look like. But you can actually get it in a really specific plane in, in training. Mm. And as long as you find, and it's obviously very difficult to manage that in a group setting, et cetera, things like that and stuff. But luckily you've managed the schedule here, so you could probably work it all <laughs> in and stuff like that, like, you know. But like, I feel like there's still an element of, um, that that comes with it as well. The snap down is a really exact, interesting one, right? Because, like, when you go for a snap down, what determines, like, when when do you choose to do it? Like, I'm asking you now, like, when do you choose to do it when you're sparring, drilling? Like, what makes you decide to snap someone down? When they're at their weakest. Balance, yeah. yeah, their posture, their balance, their their poison stuff. So in reality, a snap down isn't always like anything to do with how strong mm. your snap down is. It's your ability to get them off balance, to mm. get them to bump, and then you know, yeah. it's your it's your footwork, it's your fainting. It's so. You know, I don't necessarily think that you always need to try and replicate some of those mm. movements and, and actually drill snapdowns. Have, have like literally yeah. both of you are going to fight for snapdown. You know, I mean, or person A is fighting for snapdown, person B is shooting for, you know, so you, you whatever you can kind of manipulate to make that happen. And that's where I think you can get lost in some of those nuances. I think the where I'd see the most specific stuff, so say you're talking about like your grip and wanting to be like strengthening, like say you're, you're clubbing like yeah. position for your hand, yeah. say for instance. So a lot of like my injury prevention work, you, you class as robustness. And I think for grappling, that means a different thing. I think mm. for grappling, it's, so we, we talk about in rugby robustness of your calf, your hand, your footy is a great example. You, our, our robustness sessions in, in footy are making you robust to run. 
because mm. they do a fuckload of running. Like that wouldn't look the same as robustness for jits. Yeah. So like robustness for jits is how well can you like right, robustness is not being moved, right? It's like actually how well can you stay in your form and your yeah, posture yeah. and your position without being manipulated? And that's the sport. Mm. So like like a lot of like neck flexion work and things like, like how actual like durable are you to be able to hold mm. those positions? Like how well can you hold that that cut class position mm. in relation to the sport? And it's not just injury prevention, but it's technique preservation mm. i think for, for for grappling that's where like i think a lot of clubs and i know we chatted like loosely around it and stuff like that but adding elements of that type of training at the end of your sessions yeah. or something like that okay. where it's like say i don't know say, say sprawling for instance like if a guy's not got a really a good ability to maintain his trunk in eccentric sort of you know loading they're probably not gonna be able to sprawl very well because mm. you have to really like lengthen and work against that so you might do elements of rollouts at the end of your session. You might do some grip work. You might do some neck strength, or yeah. even like if you think about a half guard, like you know, resisted manual clamshells. It's someone's trying to squash your your frame down with your shin, and they push you there. Well, why don't we do a good amount of actual just mechanical manual work at the end of a session? Yeah, when we're here at the academy. But yeah. that doesn't mean when you get your one hour, two hours a week in the gym, you yeah. go and do a, a like a you know a good and clamshell. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, what's going to give you a really big grounding to be able to do that? Well, fuck loads of type 2 fiber development, strong muscle mass, muscular coordination. So you can't convince me that someone who can do a really good, strong, deep back squat can laterally lunge heavy, can, is going to have a problem, like, you know, producing that in the context yeah. of sport. But they might need to feel what it looks like. Timing wise, and do you, do you get what I'm mean? saying? Then it's that perfect, that? and that's why like, yeah. that's why you're a strength conditioning <laughs> professional because you're able to succinctly state what yeah. is good, what's not so good, what could be modified, you know, in less than ten minutes for someone yeah. who's been partaking in their sport for you know twenty years. And it always comes from it, it comes from a good place, and it comes from um, maybe like a lack of guy or conversation, a lack of guidance or conversation. Because likewise, if I'm a, if I'm a, if I'm a PT who's trying to suddenly because BJJ is popular, suddenly become BJJ strength coach. You'll speak about, oh, I like doing this. Oh, that's brilliant. We'll, we'll, do. we'll make it even, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, actually, like, there's some times when I'll, I'll go back and forth from the athletes going, ah, I genuinely think, but having them conversations ends up being really powerful yeah. and positive and, you know. And that's what a lot of people yeah. lack. They actually just lack the conversation. They yeah. lack the ability to communicate with someone about the topic. Um, sorry, they, again, they sorry, don't really see, strength, not yeah, because strength coaches do the same thing, right? Mm. Like strength coaches go, nah, your best way to improve your eccentric rate is, is X, Y, and Z. And it's like, it is, but that doesn't make the athlete feel like they're better at the sport. It doesn't, you know, there's, you actually miss that element of mm. transfer as well. And like, anyone can make someone strong in the gym. You follow strength training templates and you'll get stronger. But like, how do you feel stronger in position? How do you... Um, so one of my, back to example, one of my fighters, Ellis, like he, before we started, like really technically gifted, great scrambler, like, you know, really like nice scrappler, but was, was, was quite childlike and he was young and transitioning through and his strength work. And we started saying about in some of his sessions, when we want to see him transfer that strength, like war wrestling was one of them for it. I was like, you actually sometimes, you know how like, um, higher, let's say, say you roll with me. Like you're in complete control of it. You'll put yourself in some positions that challenge you and something you want to work on, right? And it's like, 
Like, I'm aware of that. I'm not, that's not, I, I, I that have to, go, man. Yeah, <laughs> that doesn't go over my head. Like, no. But, like, in the same way as, like, him being a really nice grappler, I actually want him to try and use strength sometimes. And I'm not saying that's, like, what you should do to be good at your sport. But also, if you never expose yourself to it, it's the same as a real strong guy saying, like, roll lighter, mate. Like, actually roll with some feel. It's, it's the same thing. But apparently we're not allowed to tell people they can try and be strong and explosive <laughs> and, and not technically pure. Because guess what happens when some big fucker picks, like, you know, like you do end up, if technique breaks down, you rely on strength. And oh, man, and what, ways, what happens you know? when you don't have a choice? Yeah. Because adrenaline yeah. and your opponent's intensity will dictate how much strength and force you put into it. If you want to come out smooth and light, and they come the best. out like yeah. a fucking house on fire and you're forced into using rapid acceleration, you're not going to be used to it. Actually, the one drill that we used to do a lot was finishing instincts. So the area of ground and pound is a massive area where guys do not go as hard as they could possibly they don't pull the go trigger like, yeah? Because they can't in training. They're not going to physically destroy their yeah. main training partners with ground and pound by striking them as hard as they possibly can with strikes and elbows. So they never feel the true cost of going 100% on a finish. Fuck, yeah, that's a good point, though. Um, so yeah. I used to see it a lot, especially in the early days. Guys would try and finish and say, like, they takes it, because what is it? It's the fear game plan. Mm. Overhand, right, take down, now I'm winning. And then they'd try and finish them, and they'd gas themselves out because they didn't have the right efficiency to put strikes into the right areas with the right energy, and they'd always throw too light. That yeah. means they'd always throw too much. The, the other and one, if they tried to throw hard, they'd gas out immediately because they weren't used to doing that in training. It's just, it goes back to what we said right at the start, right? Like, you're, that's why I, I think competing regular amateur is important because that's your opportunity to go. Like, mm. you know, you get that killer instinct. Like, so footy, you get a chance to kick a goal in training, right? It's like, that's it, you're like, bang, oh, it's on, bang, kick, you know, and you, you develop that ability. Like, finishing and then, like, say, if you're training with friends is, like, it's, it's actually probably same with jiu-jitsu, right? I, I've never, like, I've never got to a point where I've had an armbar in comp. I've probably never tried to fucking break <laughs> someone's arm in an armbar. Like, I don't, like, I don't know if I'd be good at it or capable or, like, but in MMA, like, say, for instance, you, that ground and pound example is brilliant. If you fight amateur regularly, like what we spoke about earlier, without fear of reprisal and, and get exposed to it, don't just have one event where you're so desperate to win, you sit on them for the whole, mm. you know, explore your options and, and stuff like that. Because then that's where you get that opportunity to have a go at finishing. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. like, yeah, or do it with head guards. So that, you know. we would try to simulate that in the gym by having, you know, people hold pads grounded and you'd have a minute to two minutes to essentially sprint and try and consistently finish. Yeah. And then one of your other training partners would be there as a referee saying, oh, you've got to move, you've got to move, mm. talking to the person on the bottom because that also impacts your urgency yep. as the attacker. Yeah. Um, so it was good. You know, it works to a certain extent. Um, but, you know, that kind of simulation in a, in a grappling sense is like you are, you know, a lot of the, the three points down stuff that we yeah. I choose yeah. three points because generally... In a general rule set, it means you have to score twice or make a big yeah. definitive movement. Yeah. You have to take someone down a pass. You have to take their back on mount in order to make that you score. You have to do something else yeah. or big. Yeah. yeah. So if you've got two minutes, you're three points down and you're starting in a position of disadvantage, that's really going to challenge your ability to think ahead and then execute and perform uh, with urgency. With urgency and composure. Yeah. Right? So, like, if you just make shit decisions, it's just going to go from bad to worse. But if you're constantly put in a situation where there is urgency, which means 
you're going to have to be more explosive. You're going to potentially have to use a little bit more of your strength you than you usually would. Yeah, yeah but it's yeah. not what we're saying is this isn't a normal role. This yeah. isn't a rolling time. This is performance. This is execution. And exactly, that's the point. You, you've got to try and hang your hat on as well as like you have to care about the outcome for that to mm. really replicate. Like, do you know yeah. what I mean? And if you're there, like, oh, I lost. Like, you know, it's yeah. like, that, that, that's also fine. If that, you know what I mean? But yeah. if you're if your trainings compete at a high level, like winning and losing has to be, like the best athletes I ever, like, they're fucking hugely competitive. And you mm. see that across, that's one of the most universal qualities of high performers, they fucking hate losing. Tony Caruso comes in week after week after week asking me about soap. I'm like, you fucking <laughs> asshole. <laughs> I'm like, could you calm down here? You're not gonna get any soap, right? You're not winning that soap. Yeah. Like, but it's, you know, it's true, it? yeah. Like, you don't scramble, like, like, Fuck! Like I, I don't think I, I when, when I when I wrestled and competed, like I never even I trained hard. And I, I like to think I can I can bring a level of intensity that feels like competition, like because I'm around it a lot. But fuck, I, I've never competed that hard at anything. Like my fucking my arm fell apart, and you still, yeah. you know, it's like and you and you come off and that dump of adrenaline and that kind of like that's what I love about performance sport, right? Is you see people do things that are just so outside of their norm and, 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 and you know it's yeah, a, you see them yeah, come to that realisation yeah. did I really just do that I remember I, I bring up swimming again yeah. but I swam a 23 23.95 for 50 freestyle and I was like 14 right? and my whole goal would, was to like get under 25 for okay. 50 because yeah. right? then you're swimming you know, you know more than a metre what what's the metric on that two metres a second two metres yeah. a second yeah. that's like your goal right? yeah. and I swam a 23.95 and I was fucking shocked yeah I was like, did I actually do that? Yeah. Fuck. And I love seeing it. I had it, no like, idea that I had that ability in me to actually do that. It, and then I did it for Butterfly. And I'm like, oh, wow. Yeah. Did it. Like, that's incredible. Right? But once you realize you can, yeah. you do. Yeah, I unlock well. the like, next like, step. Yeah. 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 So we've been talking for a little while now. And obviously you've been able to chronicle, you know, or pretty much encapsulate through uh, accounts of your experience, just how vast that experience has been. You have, literally have been all over the world as a conditioning coach and as an athlete outright. You're here today, you're wearing your shirt that says grip. That's your company, that's your business. Mm -hmm. Please talk to me a little bit about what that means to you to have grip, to have athletes. When you're saying my boys, my boys that you're referring to, you're referring to athletes who are all around the world right now, who are utilizing your services as a conditioning coach and are reaching high levels. Talk to me a little bit about grip and what that means to you um, is it a combination of your efforts? Is it something that you believe in and, and you want to provide to more athletes? Mm. Like, talk to me about it. Yeah, man. It's, it's been something that's kind of come in the last sort of 18 months. Like, firstly, out of, like, so, so COVID brought a huge sense of um, fragility to us in sport. And I know, like, working in pro sport, you can get fired within the next three months comfortably, right? And it's like, so you always live with that level of, like, mm. you know, like, uncertainty. But, like, if you if you're good, you won't be. So, like, you know, you just kind of double down in that way. But um, we got, overnight, we got 25% pay cuts, which was, like, across the board in rugby. And, you know, and it was like, we understood it, but it also highlighted me as, like, shit, like, you know, it was kind of like the realisation that you can get fired before you did, right? As in, like, our contracts are malleable, they change, you know, and it's like, all it took was one change and suddenly that had happened. So part of it for me was, um, I started thinking, right, I'd like to have an element of self-sustainability, you know, I think I've got enough experience now where I, like, you always still have, and I still have to this day, that element of, like, imposter syndrome in terms of, like, from where you started out to what you do now and stuff, and, but I feel like I'm credible enough that I can 
like I wouldn't want to have started this when I was a graduate out of uni and like you know like I feel like my experience is part of what you can contribute to people and it was literally with the guys at Craig's it was um you know it was um realizing how much these guys benefited from the programming um realizing I really enjoyed it and it was it was something where I was like actually you know what this would be something that like say super long term I would love to do regularly you know and um so we, we kind of sort of like I say we I kind of started putting it together and um, like the mission statement for what we do is around about like basically no grappling athlete should be at a disadvantage to others because of the lack of support available to them and that means like I'm like some guys are fortunate they, they grow up around good strength coaches good facilities but if you're living in rural South Australia or something like that or like different points and you don't have this level of experience around you well, you shouldn't be worse off because someone else does. You know, if you really, you know, everyone should have access to it. And yeah. that was kind of the, the initial sort of thing where I was like, you know what, like, say grappling is generally in its infancy. There's a lot of people, loads of misinformation, loads of different bits and pieces. And, like, I just loved, like, how, and even, like you say here now, like, how, like, I'm completely new to, to SA. I've turned up, I've gone to an MMA gym, I've met people, I've made friends and stuff, and I feel like that community is so good that, like, you actually want to support it yeah, in, in, a, yeah. in another way, like, you know? Um, so that was a kind of main driver behind it. So like openly there was an element of like wanting some sort of self-sustainability and a mm -hmm. long-term plan of controlling my own future because sport is completely rogue and you don't know where things are going to go. Yeah. Um, and then it was a community and an environment I felt I could contribute to in a positive mm. way. Like that was a, the combination of the two of them. Well, I think know? if people were listening and they listened to how you broke down what I do, <laughs> you know, like yeah. that's, that's a great thing. Yeah. That proves your worth, you know, within, within the duration of one podcast. Yeah. <laughs> so, but I mean, I think we've come into contact with each other. The reason you're on this podcast today is because we've really clicked. I feel like we're really aligned with our methodology and our line of thinking. I've loved having you in as a student, as a grappler, I'm really glad that you've enjoyed the classes and you've continued yeah. to come back. You've found something that you believe in and that you have, you believe is has value. I believe in the same thing when it comes to you and the, the information that you have and the potential for you to contribute to our community is massive. And I, I, I honestly feel like it's a bit of a no-brainer. Like I, my, myself and Jackie have wanted to approach you for a little bit about how we can make a connection between grip and MATLAB happen. Mm -hmm. I want to see the best for my students and I know that you can provide that for mm -hmm. them. So we're gonna, you know, hopefully in within the next week or two, we're gonna, we're gonna have a, some really good conversations about how we can start benefiting, you know, the, the student base at MATLAB, but also the grappling community in South Australia with some, some furthered data some further opportunities to get data because what, what most strength and conditioning coaches don't have is they don't have a club of athletes mm. that they can aid en masse and get data points on to improve their own methodology. Mm. You have that mm. at the Crows. Yeah. You know, you, but there's no one grappling-based conditioning coach that has an entire club where they can work on. Mm. And they can work on themselves and they can work on the athletes. So. I'm looking forward to what the future holds, man. Yeah. It'll be really interesting. Right. And I, I say openly as well as like, I mean, part of like why I ended up grabbing, and I'm not just saying this to, to, to kiss your ass and stuff like that, because I, I, like, I wouldn't unless it was true, but like, like I've tried loads of different, like, you know, when you go to yoga classes, you go to a different, like, you know, I, I sampled a few places around and stuff and like, 
having worked in performance sport, you have an element of an expectation of a level of coaching mm. that you're willing to pay. You know, you're paying your, your own money, you're doing it in your own time, your time is finite. And like, that was one back when I went to Craigs, it was like a no brainer of a level of coaching. You know, it was like, I knew I was getting great support and it's been exactly the same here. You know, I wouldn't be like, I think the fact I've settled into training here well is because it's, it's high quality coaching and you see the value of it and stuff like that. So, you know, it goes, it goes both ways. Do you know what I mean? And I think that's, um, that's something that's super important, probably not to, to gloss over as well. Like, you know, yeah. it's like, like I don't tend to stick around to places that aren't a, a high performance, you know, like, yeah, because yeah. you know what good looks like and you kind of know, you know, have like every session you come here, you've put a lot of thought into the next, not just that next half an hour, hour, but like the next week's progressions, etc., things like that and stuff. So I think it's a credit to you guys, how the, the classes are running and stuff like that. I, I mean that genuinely, like, no, you know I what I mean? Like, yeah, so yeah. like just, Keep, keep doing what you're doing and oh, we're like, gonna yeah, keep doing it and yeah. then we're gonna make it better together like I, I'll use my wife as an example Jackie does six sessions like six days a week mm. every single session that's 12 sessions a week mm. right she's gonna have ups and downs physically she's gonna have ups and downs mentally but because of the way that we set out the structure there are high intensity and low intensity days and what she's been able to come up with not only in the last six months but potentially even last three mm. she's probably doubled or tripled her capacity as a grappler in that 100%. time yeah. and she's from the time that she started competing to, to this point yeah she's undefeated she's competing as a white belt but the level of technique and progression she's made as a competitor so what she's been able to actually do on the mats mm. from her first competition you know less than two months ago to her last competition putting on some like seriously composed and precise you know performances I only think that's going to get better and I only think it's going to get more prolific with the rest of the students the more they give themselves over to that program, you know what I mean? I believe in the program, I believe in the structure and I also believe that you you would be a great addition to that programming and that structuring so I'm I'm really looking forward to what we can put together. I think it comes down to as well, like, like on that is like, as a credit Jack as well as like, like again I've worked with like countless athletes you know you coach countless guys and stuff like that and it's like the how open they are to willing to improve you know what mm. I mean and, and listening to your advice and you know like the, the, the stuff that we're putting out there isn't like groundbreaking mm. but how well uh, an athlete a player a student at the club applies it yeah. and believe you know and like that ultimately, like the, the scale of improvement's high for anyone, yeah. provided they're willing to, to do yeah. that. So that's one yeah, of the hardest things like, yeah. to do, man. Yeah, that's yeah. actually quite difficult to do. Yeah. Like I'm learning this thing; it's outside of my wheel wheelhouse. I find it hard to implement in rolling. Mm. Therefore, I'm not going to do it. Yeah, like yeah. being open enough to actually implement these new strategies that take time to develop is huge. Yeah, and the more time you give yourself to do it, and the more you come to training and and go through all of those different little aspects, guard systems here, comp class here, mm-hmm. wrestling mm-hmm. here, yeah. no gi here. Doing but stuff when you don't want to. When that's you're tired, it, you that's know, when you're tired, yeah. Yeah. but you understand why these things are placed in the week and you, mm-hmm. you sort of trust it and you have faith a little bit more, it does happen. The and progression that's happens. To, and that's when I start actually provide the right information then, isn't it? Yeah. People give you their trust, you've got to, you know. And you've yeah. got to coach there. It's cohesive, yeah. they're measuring your progress and they're, they care. They care yeah. about your progress as yeah. well. That's what it's got to be with strength, strength and conditioning as well, and that's what you bring to the table. Mm-hmm. I'm very excited to see your business as grip grow, and I'm hopefully we're going to be a part of that as well. 100%, yeah. yeah.
Man, we've been chatting for almost two hours now, bro. <laughs> it's a long That's way. what happens. <laughs> but, um, yeah. Thank you so much for coming in and, and giving your time today. Um, I'm really looking forward to what the future holds. And um, yeah, is there anything else you, you want to touch on? Anyone you want to mention or the crows? <laughs> no, or... <laughs> I, I, no I, I don't. I don't. I don't think so. Really, I think. Um... No, it's just been like it's been it's been great and i really enjoyed it and yeah like looking forward to keeping going mate yeah, yeah we're on yeah all right thank you so much man oh. guys stay tuned we'll be back same bat time same bat channel for all the bat fans out there